Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Very good, Darren. How are you? I'm I'm not going to lie, I'm a little disappointed. All good things must come to an end. And after a very limited, seemingly 12-year-long engagement, our summer of Scorsese is coming to an end in the middle of December 2020. We are wrapping up our final it's been episode. A long summer. It really has. Um, appropriately yeah. enough. Are you, are you? Are you? Like, how are you worried now about like what? 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 What are we going to do? What do we do? I. I, I think that we do. We do like. We do Halloween episodes, right? Oh, we've done um, those. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well then. Well then, I have no idea what we're going to do. Um, oh. Don't worry, then the end of the podcast will be a surprise for you as well. I do like that we've reached the point where we've done so much Scorsese that Andrew is just kind of disoriented and confused by the process. You're relaxed, though. You seem seem relaxed. Thank you. um, How do you say so relaxed, (laughs) Darren? Well, well, you see, Andrew, I live on a rigorous drug regimen. I got cocaine to get me high, Adderall to keep me focused, Xanax to take the What kind of number is he doing? (laughs) I... I mean, I'm doing like two, three podcasts a week, you know, maybe five. They're rookie numbers there. <laughs> we need to get those up. Um, but you need to get those numbers up. <laughs> but yes, Jay, I don't do it because I want to, although I want to. I do it because I need to. And yeah, listeners, right. you have heard our fantastic season slash Summer of Scorsese co-host for his final week in residence, Mr. Jay Coyle. How are you? Great. It's been 84 years, dot gift, <laughs> and so on and so forth. Uh, great. Good, good. Grand. And we've got a returning guest here, the wonderful Aoife Martin. How are you, Aoife? I'm good, thanks. Nice to be back. Thank you for coming back. And we've got a new guest for Scorsese season, our last guest on the summer of Scorsese. Again, now releasing in mid-December, the wonderful Mr. Luke Dunn. How are you, Luke? I'm very good. I didn't realise it was still the summer. Um... <laughs> it's always the summer in this podcast. <laughs> it's a very... <laughs> exciting revelation i actually because this is coming out in december it just makes me realize like i can i need to get you a calendar Darren, <laughs> for christmas so that you can have just a better general sense of when the summer begins <laughs> darren, darren knows that it's the 20th year of the millennium <laughs> other than that it doesn't summer. really matter yeah to be honest you say that though as if the seasons matter at all this year luke that that's very true yeah. i mean it's it's still basically April, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. seasons only matter if you leave the house as well. <laughs> like, um, or go more than five kilometers away for, from for, us. Uh, for indoor Truly, activity. this year shows that that uh, nothing really matters, you know? <laughs> and that life is like a sewer. What you get out of it <laughs> depends on what you put into it, as Tom Lehrer once said. But, uh, but uh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. It sounds like us. Uh, I'm having a great summer. <laughs> to be fair, we did just start watching uh, The Wolf of Wall Street back in summer, to be fair. It just took that long until all of us had finished. Yeah. Um, we, we, we saw it in a drive-thru, Darren. And, a drive-in, we, we, not drive-thru. Yeah. Drive-thru movies are oh, very sorry. different concepts. It was a drive-thru movie. Hell of a queue. A three-hour-long drive-thru movie. <laughs> Yes, actually, myself and Andrew did see this before we actually kicked off uh, the summer of Scorsese. We saw it at, at the drive-in down in Leopardstown, actually, which was very nice. It was a very nice idea. Thank you for that suggestion, Andrew. 
thank you. I, 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 I feel I feel I feel like it would have been nicer if I'd gotten you there on time. <laughs> although, although the time did change, in yeah. fairness. And you arrived I mean, and it was already kind of 20 minutes in. But statistically, I still have to see 90% of the movie, so it's fine. I mean, yeah, on average, I, I saw most I think they realized how long it was. And it's like, oh, geez, we can't show it that long. Yeah, we have uh, to move the time back, the starting time yeah. back. But yes, so when we have a new guest on for this summer of Scorsese, we typically ask them a couple of questions to, to kind of acclimatize, get them a bit used to this. So, Luke, quick question. What's... Can you talk about your relationship with Scorsese? So what was your first Scorsese movie that you saw? What do you think of as a filmmaker? And what is your favorite Martin Scorsese movie? Um, I think that the first Martin Scorsese movie I ever saw, which came from the grand tradition of my dad coming home from Extra Vision, just with a pile of stuff that he heard was meant to be good, um, but had never seen, was probably, I think it was The Aviator. Wow. Um, so, and I would have been like maybe I'd have been just young enough that literally every single aspect of the aviator went in completely over my head when I watched it. Literally it. flew over your head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and crashed and burnt, but carried on regardless. Um, and I actually, I don't think I've seen the aviator since then. I must, I must go back and rewatch it. But. Um, yeah, just was just far too young to really understand anything to any any aspect of that story. <laughs> Other than wow, these Hollywood red carpets look nice. Yeah. These, these people are so glamorous. Hey, this, that's this, guy is, this guy has a great life. Most <laughs> glamorous thing. Uh, although it was it was one of those early kind of uh, definitely for people of my generation, it was one of those kind of rites of passage where you suddenly understand a couple of Simpsons jokes. Yeah. So like Cape Fear for myself and Andrew, basically. I love that Scorsese is the landmark filmmaker in this regard. I wish I was uh, yeah. young enough for this to be a thing, I have to say, but it's <laughs> alas not for me. There's yeah. probably been lots of Wolf of Wall Street Simpsons jokes, but I haven't really I'm watched them. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure they gave Hugo both barrels, you know, they probably had like an opening that was all done in the style of Hugo that oh, so. went viral on YouTube and nobody I even saw. <laughs> <laughs> For all um, we know, Simpsons could be good again. Um, we know it's not, though. <laughs> <laughs> Are we recording like that far back. in advance? Um, like now that they're finished with Futurama, kind of, like that, didn't that always happen? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. Uh, <laughs> but, um, like I, I have a pretty good track record with Scorsese. I wouldn't have seen, I don't think even half of his films probably, but I, I have seen a good chunk and I generally am a pretty big fan. Um, I think that Scorsese is one of those great filmmakers in that he kind of feels that he's, he's very good for formative watching and kind of, that there, I mean, there's a reason he's so popular on this list and with kind of film bros and that, and that it, he does kind of, his sensational style gives you that kind of, whoa, like it, it kind of opens your eyes up to this whole new kind of uh, style of filmmaking and, and, and way of watching films. And then if you go a little deeper into his filmography and if you rewatch some of his, his best stuff uh, several times, you actually then can actually appreciate them <laughs> beyond just their aesthetic value. Um, like for me, like when I think about the, the Scorsese films that I own, like Casino, 
well, age of innocence. <laughs> and you're cooking with gas. Uh, I'm a very boring person, so <laughs> the boring Scorsese movies are like I, I like Silence. I know that's not a very popular one as well. Uh, a good, light, long eight-hour, real boring kind of movie. <laughs> a movie that you well, yeah. that's he, what he does, I like. He does kind of meet people's requirements when they want like super long movies. Like, but if you're watching a movie, and it's like this is super long, but it could be more boring. Like that. Are those are those your favorites, Luke? Like, do do do, would you say you have a favorite? What's the what's the Lemon Seven One Four of uh, <laughs> the one that has the delayed kick, the fuse? Yeah. Um, I think no. I mean, I I think considering what I just said, in fact, my my favorite Scorsese film probably is Goodfellas which right. is a very basic answer, but it's just, there are so many layers to that film, as I say, and it's kind of, you watch that when you're 17, 18, and you're like, whoa, holy <laughs> it kind of hits you in a certain way. And then the more that you watch it and rewatch it, the the more that you find in it, and it's one of those that I think you could never stop finding stuff in. And I actually, I listened to your guys' uh, episode um, on it during, during the summer. <laughs> 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 and it's it's one of those like it's one of those films where even if you hear it come up in conversation you're like oh, i want to watch it again now actually yeah it's not you don't like if you see it on tv obviously it, it, it's got that um it's got the reputation of you'll sit down and watch the whole thing but it's like even if it comes up you're like oh yeah now i have to watch it now this evening which I did. <laughs> yeah, the Goodfellas episode is by far our most popular Scorsese season episode, if only because we hope that there's an Ouroboros happening where people are listening to the podcast, watching the movie, then listen to the podcast again, then watching the movie again. That's the only thing that we can think that will account for that figure or that listenership. But well, uh, now, now, now Goodfellas is always on. Like even though, like even even if even though it was always on before, always on the television. Now it is literally always on. You can always watch it. You can stream it anytime you want. <laughs> so and now 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 that will become a problem, Luke. If 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 somebody hears the words Goodfellas, like even if it's in reference to pizza, and it doesn't have to be on television, they can just load it up on. I love the idea of Andrew saying that the moment that he got on a Scorsese podcast, when it was Goodfellas this and Goodfellas that, from that moment he was hooked. Um, that's that's probably the trajectory that we're we're going to to arrive at, especially when you're kind of, or at least I'm kind of grabbing onto my comfort food movies more than ever. Like Goodfellas is just going to become like a ponty pool like thing, right? Just, <laughs> it's just like recursive loop. That uh, I love, by the way, that Goodfellas would be your comfort food me. movie. Yeah. But the food in it is delicious, man. I think I think it would be a comfort food movie in general. I think a lot of people love the rewatchability of it. It's one of those old friends, even when they're shooting each other. <laughs> Everybody has their ups and downs, Jay. Yeah, uh, exactly. but like Goodfellas, obviously, like it scandalized people so much back in the day because it's like these people are morally reprehensible and they're just completely consumed by avarice. And then you have like decades later, this film comes out and it's like, oh. <laughs> Yeah. The Goodfellas got a gang. They're actually kind of, you know, they're just. <laughs> <bad. Yeah. laughs> just you can have money. a you can have a drink with them. They're not like exhausting. They do have like a bottom to their made of rock, yeah. Reprehensible nature, which 
Uh, not everyone has, apparently. <laughs> um, which I think brings us neatly to the movie we're talking about today, which is Scorsese's 2013 smash hit, the highest grossing Martin Scorsese movie to date, and likely to remain so, given that he seems to be producing movies almost exclusively for streaming at the moment. This who, is The who, Wolf of Wall Street. Who knows how much his Netflix movies gross? Like, they won't tell us. Yes. Right? Yeah, they won't announce, they don't, they don't announce box office, office returns, even when they open in cinemas. Um, they have to speculate. They have to guess for Roma and for The Irishman, uh, which is interesting, but a, a separate podcast of itself. I suspect this may be long enough as it is. You can put that in in post. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Aoife, to kick us off there, do you remember the first time that you saw Wolf of Wall Street and what your reaction to it was? Um, yeah, so I saw it in, back in 2013. I saw it in the cinema. Um, I don't remember what my reaction was. I think I was, I was pretty indifferent to it at the time. Um, like my reaction on rewatching it, um, I had quite a visceral reaction rewatching it this time. So we we can talk about that later. Um, but my first my first reaction was, yeah, it's okay. It's a bit long. Um, you know, technically it's technically it's it's wonderful, and um, you know, it's quite darkly funny in places. I remember thinking. But, um, but I, you know, I hadn't watched it since, which tells me something about it. Um, generally, I would, you know, I, I tend to rewatch a lot of Scorsese's work because it is so rewatchable, as as Luke was saying. Um, but this time for Wolf of Wall Street, this was my first time rewatching it since I saw it in the cinema. I actually went went and bought the Blu-ray just so I could rewatch it again. Um, and I had a very very visceral reaction that I wasn't expecting. And it'll be interesting to see if my reaction um, tallies with everybody else's. I suspect it doesn't, but we shall we shall see. Uh, oh, this this is interesting. Just to be clear to listeners again, listening back to the departed episode, Jay invited Aoife on for this one, which is interesting. I love that. I, I invite Aoife on for everything. You did. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, come on over. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. Join in. It's grand. Uh, just because like, I don't know what Aoife's visceral reaction to The Wolf of Wall Street is, but I remember we were talking about The Departed and it was like, Aoife hates The Departed. And I was like, just so listeners know, we didn't force Aoife to watch a movie that she hates and come on and talk about it for two hours. Um, I did. No, you didn't. <laughs> I, I, I did. Um, and what about yourself, Jay? Do you remember the first time that you saw Wolf of Wall Street? What I absolutely do. Uh, it was... Uh, <laughs> T- a 10 a.m. press screening Ooh. in the Ice End Cinema in, uh, <laughs> down at Spencer Dock. Uh, I imagine at, that was something. At the point, the point cinema. I I came out as cinema punch drunk. Um, it was like it's a lot as a film, and it was a lot at 10 a.m. Um, <laughs> like I, I need a coffee. It was absurd. Um, and yeah, I I kind you probably of needed it. a coffee at the start and a coffee at the end, like there was, I mean, was and a coffee because it was like and something else. It, yeah, like bre- breakfast, kind of when you were coming yeah. in, and then lunchtime when you're leaving. <laughs> the dinner just as a tail <laughs> off towards the end, like a long haul flight. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, I was I was I was blown away by it uh, for reasons we will get into almost immediately, and I've rewatched it a few times since. Which is remarkable because I don't know how long it is. Um, and again, obviously, I watched it for the podcast uh, a couple of days ago, and yeah, it was a lot, and it's a lot, and it continues to be a lot, and I think it needs to be a lot in different ways that it did in 2013, in in many many aspects, which we'll get into. But yeah, a press screen is uh, is quite the way to see it, and on the ice as well, course. which I think is technically the yes, biggest screen in Dublin. Yeah. 
um, yes. to give listeners perspective. So I imagine yeah, getting that in the ghost in. town. <laughs> um, and uh, Luke, actually, what about yourself? Do you remember the first time that you saw Wolf of Wall Street? Um, I do, because before I started film in Dublin, um, I used to write for the the now uh, the now defunct uh, film website called Film Fix, uh, which was run by Ross O'Neill, and in the middle of the 2010s, uh, we did like a best films of the decade so far list, which was a very probably over-involved process um, <laughs> where like there was, we had a whole, like the, the, the writers at Film Fix, we had a whole, I say we, I think this was my idea, but um, <laughs> we had a whole ranking system, a whole voting system where like there was points depending on you know how good that you thought a film was we divided it up by genre so we didn't just say these are the best whatever films we want this is the best horror this is the best blah 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 but to prepare for that in order because people would propose certain films so in order to prepare adequately for that i took it upon myself to watch them all because otherwise you'd be making <laughs> an uninformed decision how could i know how much what 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 number ranking to give it or whatever um, so it was a long, exhausting process, <laughs> so, somewhat similar to to the experience of of watching uh, Wolf, of Wall, Wolf of Wall Street. But it's, yeah. so, and I I haven't really rewatched it since then. So my views on it, you could maybe take with a pinch of salt because I've never had to watch it where it's not been homework. <laughs> not that not that I'm not happy to be here. <laughs> to, to 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 be clear. But like I, I, I do appreciate it a lot. I, I think what I mean is that I've never, I, I don't know that I've quite cracked my personal feelings on it in that way because I can recognize a lot in it that I do really like, or at least that I really appreciate. But I certainly can understand, and certainly to a degree myself, have had a visceral kind of reaction to it, and it's one like everyone talks about how long this movie is. Um, and I generally am fine with long movies and I, I generally kind of push back against the idea that if a movie is longer, that automatically is detracting, detracting from it. And in particular with Scorsese that like, you know, that he's not aware kind of almost sometimes people seem to, to, to kind of lobby at him that he doesn't seem to know how long these things are. Or that like good editing of his films or films in general means quite simply making films shorter. And I, I don't think necessarily that this film should be shorter, but it is as all like, come on. <laughs> like I, I get why it is the way it is, but you know, I, I gotta go to bed. <laughs> like, uh, this is this is my long weekend and now it's nearly over because of this. So let's you know escape the movement. It's funny the amount of kind of celebration goes to Thomas Schumacher, who's great, and and we 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 we've given given a lot of love. But how 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 much responsibility for the <laughs> the length of these movies? Or is is it like based on stuff about kind of say the gangs gangs of New York? There was like a five hour cut. Maybe we we just ought to thank 
her for 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 getting these movies kind of um, down to three. I was about to say, yeah, like, look at it as a percentage. Three. Yeah, look at it as a percentage work there. That's like a forty percent cut there. I mean, this is the thing where Wolf of Wall Street had a well. Again, we'll, we'll talk maybe about the production stuff later on, but it did have oh, yeah. a somewhat troubled production and development cycle where it, like Shutter Island, which we talked about two weeks ago, looked like it missed its original date. So it was originally originally scheduled for the twenty fifth of November. But the issue with that was that Scorsese had an over four hour cut of the film at that point. And apparently himself and, and Schumacher basically locked themselves in an editing booth to get down to the one minute shy of three hour cut that was released on Christmas Day in 2013. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's that is a solid shaving a quarter of the movie off. Um, also, I do I do think that editing has become a conversation around yeah, length. taking stuff out of yeah. a film as opposed to actually, making a film work for the film. Yeah, actually, regardless of the length. I'm not that, you know. Some films aren't too long. Some films are too long. <laughs> and I'll get into it in this regard when we get going on it. Uh, but yeah. And yeah, like, I'd more, say not, she's... Not, yeah. It's not more editing, sir. Yeah, no, that's it exactly. Sorry, I think. Yeah. I think I think she's probably one of the more recognizable editors. I mean, if you ask people name a film editor, um, mm. you know, she's probably top of the list that most people could name. I doubt anyone could name many others, if any others. So she is always synonymous with Scorsese films and she's obviously very, very, you know, she, she's wonderful, you know. Um, and anytime I've seen her interviewed or anytime I've seen her speak, she's just so passionate about about film and about particularly about Scorsese as well, you know. So, so there's definitely um, a really symbiotic relationship there, I think. Um, I think, you know, that they're, they're lucky to have found each other. I think we're lucky that they found each other. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with that entirely. And I think it is interesting. I think what Luke says is a very good point, which is this idea that we associate editing with reining a film director in and getting the runtime short, as opposed to being an actual collaborative uh, relationship. Because I mean, it is notable, I would argue that the handful of editors that we recognize or appreciate tend to be ones that do have kind of symbiotic relationships with the director, like Schumacher uh, with <clears throat> with Scorsese, uh, Menk with Tarantino and Smith with Nolan, I would argue as well. Um, so I think that like Roderick James with the Coens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A classic. Um, but yeah. And... But there's like, there's a specific, very difficult. I mean, this, this film is actually a good example of, of how good she is because there's a very difficult job that she has to do here, which is to take what is basically a series of, of anecdotes and kind of bluster and, and bullshit and kind of streamline it into a coherent narrative but also at the same time because of the uh the form of, of what scorsese is trying to do also make it meandering and repetitive and chaotic and, and exhausting yeah. that's tricky um, that's a really difficult uh yeah. balancing act, which I would, agree. I would i would agree that she it it mostly pulls it off but not enough for everybody <laughs> certainly no uh, and andrew what about yourself do you remember the first time that you saw wolf of wall street I'm not certain, but I feel like it was um, back in 2013. I think I, I think I think I snuck into the 10 a.m. screening in Icense. And, no, I was wondering. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Andrew's short-lived film career as a film critic was like he saw Wolf of Wall Street and he was like, "I'm out. That's me done." Yeah, um, <laughs> tried yeah. it, didn't work out. Instead, with the um, that. Uh, Oh, sorry. I was going to. I was going to say I had that dildo from The Departed, but um, <laughs> no. I, I think I think I would have seen this around this around the time it came out. 
because I, I I remember being very kind of like conscious of it, um, and having a friend who he had like a a boxing, um, he was he was he he was competing in a boxing match, and um, when he was kind of being called out, it was like a charity boxing match, and it was called the Wolf of Wine Street, uh, which is like a a a street in Sligo. Um, so, and, 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 and watching that back then, and it must have been 2013, and knowing kind of what I was referencing, obviously, you know, you knew the movie, but also having seen it. Um, and I do remember enjoying it, and I don't remember um, fixating on how long it was back then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think, it's because I we're think getting think, older and we're getting closer yeah, to death. It's like I think three it's, hours when you're 20 odd years well, old isn't that long. <laughs> Scorsese, like because yeah, because he's very old. Like uh, three, 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 three hours doesn't it doesn't seem very long. Um, but um, yeah, no, I think it's I think it's because you're watching a movie kind of at leisure and it's not homework. <laughs> Whereas when it is homework, it's like you're trying to fit it in in between things, um, and, and you're like, oh god, um, yeah. Anyway. But yeah, I, 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 I think I would have watched it around contemporaneously with when it was coming out. Yeah, I think I actually saw Wolf of Wall Street three times in its theatrical release. Uh, once possibly at an evening press screening around time of release. Second of all, with my partner at the time, who was a, as I think we've discussed on the podcast, a huge Leonardo DiCaprio fan. So it was a nice bonding experience for the pair of us. Um, and I mean, you know, she gets to see a lot of Leo here, which is, is very beneficial as well. And then third of all, because it was released at Christmas time, I think it was the Mooney family Christmas movie cinema trip. Um, like it wouldn't be unusual, though, like like you, you've seen Cats three or four times. Yes, yes, I have. <laughs> because I am a professional, Andrew. And I in fairness, I've seen I've seen Cats twice. So, uh, <laughs> just, just to be in the, the honest, kind of that. Uh, no, it does not. Yeah, but Cats so also isn't movie, three hours but... long, to be fair. It just feels That's like it's three true. years long. Um, but every time I do talk about Cats, I just want to watch Cats. Yeah, it's like the Goodfellas <laughs> feedback loop. It's like the... <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, because it was. I think this is what, what was interesting about Wolf of Wall Street was that it was, and I think we talked about this on Django, it was a Christmas release. It was released on Christmas Day in the States. It was released around Christmas time here like and worldwide as well. Just also, just like Cats, um, and also like The Greatest Showman as well, but primarily like Django Unchained the previous year. And it ended up making a shed load of money. This like perfectly atypical Christmas blockbuster. It just took the box office by storm. Americans yeah. watch movies on Christmas Day. Yep, it's a plot point in uh, what's that one with uh, Will Daddy's Home too? Daddy's, Daddy's Home. Ed, di- the Daddy's first Homer. Daddy's Home was produced by one of the people who produced this movie. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about that later on. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, look, just to give a sense of like how much money this movie made. Um, it was the it made a sensational U.S. Uh, sorry U.K. opening of four point six million pounds sterling, uh, which was the third highest debut for an 18th certificate film, just behind Hannibal and Bruno. But it was well over any of Scorsese's previous films. So Hugo opened with one point two three million, Shutter Island opened with two point two five million, and The Departed 
opened with 2.3 million. Gangs of New York was his previous biggest opening in the UK at 2.6 million. So almost double that uh, in terms of opening at the Wolf of the Wolf of Wall Street in the UK. It took the the rest of the world by storm as well. Now, obviously, and actually, this is quite fun. Let's let's quick let's do a quick world tour of like minor controversies around the opening of the Wolf of Wall Street. So Malaysia and Nepal banned it outright. Oh. Yeah, did did are are, are, are we going to talk about the kind of um, links to Malaysia? Like, did, okay, did, okay, I, I was going to go there, but we'll save it till later then. So yeah, let's just yeah, say we'll, that it we'll, was. We'll, yeah, because or do you want to talk about it? No, no, no. Like, I'm, I'm, I, I do, I do want to talk about. It. We can talk about it in the, in the, in the spoiler zone, I guess. But was was that was that for uh, for reasons of the no. Kind of, it was uh, reason of content. No. It was not related to the reasons that I think you wanted to okay. talk about. Okay, so it's kind of like the puritanical sort of Puritanical thing. reasons as well, yeah. So in, in India, um, it was heavily censored, and I kind of love this. India cut three key scenes from the movie, uh, one of which, uh, and again, minimal spoilers here, one of them was a gay orgy, the second one was a masturbation in public scene, and the third scene that was cut just involved the line, all nuns are lesbians, because it violated Indian law that religion must be respected on screen, which I kind of adore. Um, it was apparently so heavily cut in the United Arab Emirates, where they decided to release it, but to cut any swear word, any sex act, any reference to profanity, that apparently the people who went to see it on opening weekend in the United Arab Emirates uh, described it as like having an epileptic fit. It looked like the most experimental art house film that they had ever seen, where characters would just randomly bounce around the screen for no reason whatsoever. I kind of want to see this cut. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to watch that. Yet. <laughs> yeah, it cuts in. The shortest Scorsese film ever. <laughs> doesn't this have the most swear words of like any theatrically uh, released feature ever? It did at the time. It did at the time, surpassing Casino, okay, yeah. which was the previous record holder, because of course it was, and yeah, it has yeah. since been surpassed by, I believe, one of the Trailer Park Boy movies. Um, to to give us like a little. What? Yeah, one of them. Um, because you, we live in the worst of all possible world, worlds, uh, which is fascinating. Would, like, what What if Thelma Shoemaker had to come back, like, to, to do the UAE and like, edit, Indian yeah. version of the movie? Could she salvage that and make that work? Um, yeah. and, but my absolutely favorite detail about the, the Wolf of Wall Street is that, obviously, it was a very hard or in the States, in fact, several of the people working on the film admitted that they were surprised that it was not an NC-17. Apparently, like Paramount and Universal, who distributed the film, had to hire a consultant in from Fox to negotiate with the MPAA to get that or rating for the movie. Um, and apparently, yeah, Scorsese... In, sorry. In terms of nudity... Yeah. Like, we're, we're going to be recommending the movie <laughs> at some point. We'll say to people, kind of like, if, if you like nudity in your movies... Really, is this what you go for there? I think there's a conversation <laughs> to be had. Um, but it, it is worth noting that, uh, you know, in in the UK, it was rated 18s, which is equivalent to NC-17 in the States. And this is my personal favourite detail about it. In France, it was rated 12s. God bless the French. <laughs> God bless them. <laughs> and 12 is, is the highest rating a movie can have in France. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You could only have one glass of wine while watching it, it seems. Um, 
<laughs> they probably show this in schools. <laughs> Look at the decadent Americans. Um, Highly progressive schools are way that. Yeah. Uh, like the, the kid in 500 Blows kind of uh, <laughs> rolling his own cigarette. And, like, watching movies. <laughs> watching NC-17 movies in prison. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask, because you were mentioning the, the countries it was banned in and that. So, like in Switzerland, <laughs> is there any... <laughs> removed or any alteration. I know sometimes in countries like, say, in Italy or in Spain, if 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 a, if a movie makes fun of Spain, in Spain they'll say, "Oh yeah, they're talking about Italy." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if in Switzerland it's like the your man from the artist is like, "Welcome to the Cayman Islands." It's, it's, it's the only other country that's uh, kind of applicable, really, <laughs> in, in the perfect sense. Well, give it a few years to be like, well, I was about to Ireland. say, yeah, "Welcome yeah, to the Republic yeah. of Ireland," and like the CGI yeah. backdrop has been replaced with like hills. Um. <laughs> don't tell anybody. Like the people have this idea that Ireland is is a vibrant, up and coming, progressive kind of, nation. Uh, progressive, yeah, like kind of. Um, you know, a real country. <laughs> Nobody can know the the, the, the truth. Of that we're secretly a rat hole. Yeah, we basically are. We're, we're a yes, a, we are for cor- corporate corporate tax um, uh, avoidance. We're 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 a um, a sinkhole. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. We're not even a rat hole. We're a, to mix our <laughs> metaphors. We're a sinkhole. All right, then. I get the sense, then, we might be ready to talk about the movie with a bit of spoilers. So to jump us into the spoiler zone, three questions to get us started. So, Luke, do you think that The Wolf of Wall Street belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, I think what I've said before about this is that if you're going to include movies on, on such a list, that it should be kind of representative um, of, like, film in general and, and what a person should seek out if they want to have a comprehensive kind of uh, perspective on film and i don't know that if i was choosing a scorsese movie or or, or even several i and i no i do i do i do think this film is very good don't don't get me wrong but i don't know that i would necessarily put this film at the very top um because i i think that there are there are other films of his that i would look to first and I think once you're getting into putting like six, seven, eight of his films, I mean, there that you could very well make the argument for it, but I don't know that I would, yeah. you know. I can kind of see that, um, particularly because I think that a lot of what it does is probably already covered by Goodfellas and Casino, which are both already on the list, possibly. Uh, but Aoife, what about yourself? Do you think that The Wolf of Wall Street belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? No, um, I, I think I tend to agree with Luke and that, you know, there are, you know, I mean, lists are obviously very, very subjective and, you know, in, in the entire world of cinema, obviously there are, as I think I said this when we are talking about The Departed, there are definitely 251 better films than this out there in the, in the entire world. Um, it's certainly not not up there in my in my favourite Scorsese films. So, no, I, I wouldn't put it in the top 250 at all. All right. Two no's. And Jay, what about yourself? Do you know what I might? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> to be the awkward crew. Um, Jim, if you'd asked me this a few years ago, I'd have probably said no. Um, but in the way of Scorsese films, or particular ones that maybe aren't as well regarded and so on and so forth, this has a tendency to creep up higher and higher the more I watch it. And I, we'll get into it when we get into the spoiler zone and talk about it in, in depth. But uh, 
I have a huge regard for this film. I, 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 I would say it's top tier Scorsese. Now, whether that belongs on how you, I can see where Luke is saying in terms of representative of films and particular directors and all the rest of it and list, and I can see that point. And there probably are more kind of standardized, more more recognized films that would do that job. However, I know I don't I don't particularly care about lists in that way, so I could do it. It's my list. <laughs> it's my list, and, and it's not subjective, and it's not objective, and, it, and like so, it, it it might it might well go in mine. This is actually interesting. Before I ask Andrew, then, because this is the last film that we are covering from Scorsese. Yes, and this is kind of I think you've you mentioned repeatedly. I think you mentioned it on Shutter Island as well. But the idea yeah. that like as you as these more recent Scorsese movies kind of sit with you. Like you're you're getting more comfortable with considering them as classics. Yeah, or... I think I think I think Short Arms is an interesting one to part to part of there. So it's the one that's did similar things in the the kind of in the years since it's released. I don't ten years of that and seven years here. I think that's plenty of time for a film to be considered um, and to kind of wrestle with it in terms of how highly you can regard something. Um, so yeah, I I I put it in the conversation for sure. Um, and actually, Aoife or Luke as well, what do you guys think in terms of like Scorsese's recent output? Because I think his work on the list is roughly split into two halves. There's everything before the millennium, so there's four films from there, and then there's three films from after the millennium as well. How do we feel in general about, say, Scorsese's more recent output, his work with Leo, for example, and kind of films like this, Shutter Island, The Aviator? Do we think that there's a qualitative difference between them and the earlier stuff? Do we think that maybe now that we have a little bit of a distance on them, they're as good? Is it apples and oranges? Yeah, I think it's it's hard to sort of draw a line there. Um, obviously, there's you know the, the Scorsese of the seventies, which is you know sort of Taxi Driver, and uh, Mean Streets, then Raging Bull in the eighties, then Goodfellas was sort of a watermark in the nineties. Post um, Goodfellas, like some of his later stuff, the stuff he did with Leo, as you said, um, like ironically, I think this is probably um, DiCaprio's best performance in a Scorsese film. Um, but I have, a, I have a really soft spot for um, for Shutter Island. Um, I think that's a, that's a that's a lovely sort of genre piece, which is something we don't see Scorsese do enough of, I think. Um, and I really enjoyed that. But this one, like I said, I had a very very visceral reaction to it, um, which we will discuss further in the uh, the spoiler zones. Um, and I just just watching this, like watching it over the weekend. Like, yes, it's three hours long, but the time absolutely flew when I was watching it. I didn't feel those three hours going, but but I had a very, very, <laughs> very, very... That's hard to hear about this reaction. Because uh, it really feels like it's been a yo-yo situation. Yeah. It's like I had a very visceral reaction. I'm like, oh, no. But then the three hours rushed by. I'm yeah. like, oh, yes. It's like, <laughs> this is like keeping us on tender hooks. Um, yeah, yeah. Like you keep the audience <laughs> wanting more, you know, just... <laughs> so, no, so it's... Um, yeah, I, I think his post, the work he's done with um, DiCaprio, some of it has been good, some of it has been not so good. It's just, yeah, it just depends, you know. But for me, Shutter Island is probably my favourite of, of the stuff he's done with DiCaprio. And Luke, actually. Um, well, I mean, it's, 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 it's hard for me to kind of say because I suppose because of the the time that I would have started watching Scorsese stuff and that it's like post 2000s Scorsese is <laughs> Scorsese, you know, and everything else is, is kind of like you, you're, you're catching up and stuff. Um, but I, I, I think the, the 2000s and, and the 2010s have, have been a very strong period for him. And, and I think, 
as you say, Shutter Island. I think it's a, I think that's brilliant. I, I actually rewatched it not that long ago, and it it is a, it is one that similarly it, it improves on 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 rewatch and, and stuff like that. Um, I would agree totally with Aoife that this is probably, and he's done it quite a lot, but this is probably the best tune that uh, Scorsese has ever gotten out of DiCaprio. And we can kind of get into why that is, I suppose, after the, the spoilers on that. Um, and, and, and I think it's worth kind of pointing out about The Wolf of Wall Street is that it's probably Scorsese's most accessible um, work since like the early 90s. And it, in terms of some of the other stuff that he's, he's doing, it is kind of worth looking at why that is and and kind of the success in doing that you mentioned how how much money and stuff that it made and comparing that to i just remember the weekend that the irishman came out uh, which i really really loved and just hearing or seeing so many people online being like eh, they're all so my old. ears are burning <laughs> and, and all this stuff and uh, i think there's so much to appreciate in that film but i was kind of like no what why don't people appreciate it and it's like probably they didn't appreciate it because they didn't get months of lead into it with like a, the Kanye the, west trailer. i don't know if you remember the trailer yes. for this yeah which is like one of the best trailers one of the yeah, best of the yeah. 2010s i'd argue um and really made that film look made this film look kind of current and of the moment and, and stuff in ways that i think general audiences don't really find scorsese's movies anymore um for whatever, for justifiably or otherwise i don't know those two jesuit priests in japan had a lot of things to say about the modern world well i i found that current spider-man <laughs> spider-man and kylo ren luke I, I, you know i and again talking about his his later work like i i think or i hope in a few years time silence gets that kind of reevaluation and stuff because i think it is a very strong film and, and quite similar to this in a lot of ways <laughs> even though they seem so very different i'm going to come um, back to that in the spoiler zone luke um okay deadly if and Andrew, west had done a trailer for for silence. silence well the silence trailer is also phenomenal i would the, like the trailer for silence is also one of the great movie trailers of the 2010s because you have that nice little rhythm cut to it as well um but andrew what about yourself do you think that the wolf of wall street belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made um i'd say i'd say it'd be difficult to put it on one like there there would be things for us kind of i'd agree with luke that is quite accessible in terms of the the Scorsese canon um, and kind of in, but I'd, I'd, I'd agree with Ethan that Shutter Island is probably a lot better um, in terms of um, this period of Scorsese and in terms of his collaborations with, with, with DiCaprio. Yeah, so I'd, 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 I'd be reluctant. I'd, 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 I feel like saying why I wouldn't want to put it on, but the, but that it kind of bleeds into why I wouldn't put it on. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I, I guess that will be your next question. Um, but yeah, no, I'd, 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 I wouldn't be certain of, 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 of this being in, in, the, in the top 250. Um, in, ter- in terms of movies that kind of, uh, treated subject matter as well. I think there, 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 there are better movies kind of in this genre, and it's a genre kind of of its of itself. This kind of um, are we talk about films like Margin Call, for example, and things like that. Is I there? Could, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's better in margin call, although I do like margin call. Um, but the, 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 um, I'd say the likes of, I think, I think Wall Street is better. Gary Glenn Ross. I think, yeah, I, I do. I do quite like Gary Glenn Ross. I think the big short, while being kind of maybe um, perhaps too earnest in parts, is probably right to tilt in that direction where this movie doesn't. Kind of, um, you know, it's it's difficult. Um, the the kind of hypocrisy, I guess, of um, Scorsese kind of comes out because, like, I I I know he's a very kind of like moral person, but ultimately he's kind of an entertainer, and that's perhaps some of some some of his strength as a as a storyteller and a movie maker, but the kind of moral duty of 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 any kind of films that he's trying to make get um, sacrificed to the kind of entertainment and the glorification and the comedy. I mean, there is a certain amount of horror in this movie. I think it's more of a comedy. You know what I mean? So the, the, this is interesting. Yeah. So the, the, the um, yeah, the, but the, that's kind of more about my own kind of um, uh, feelings about it. Yeah, I, I suspect there's going to be a long conversation in the spoiler zone about this because I think that was one of the big controversies when it was released: the question of glorification, uh, the kind of slight moral panic around it, the question of condemnation versus endorsement versus depiction, and all that sort of stuff. So we might mm. put like a pin in that and come into it in the spoiler zone. I think it's probably the best place to do it. And for myself maybe he says offering an absolute cop out of an answer um in that i can see why you know it might be there in that i think that it I, unlike andrew i do think that it captures kind of a moment in film i think it kind of captures a snapshot of a certain zeitgeisty feeling or expression no i need to be honest absolutely not unique to that moment in time very much like a glimpse of american capitalism um, and I think that it, it kind of works very well in that in large part because it doesn't pathologize it or doesn't worry about the mechanics of it so much as kind of the culture of well, it. Well, it's a kind of 20 sense. year um, but... snapshot. It's, it's, it's like, like it's not, it's yeah. not capturing kind of a, a, a specific time. It's kind of anything from 1987 yeah. to 2007. <laughs> that, um, yeah, just yeah. a general mood. Um, you know, the, the founders came over and they chiseled the name into Plymouth Rock sort of thing. It's like, uh, Stratton Oakmont is America, Andrew. They stayed at one point in the movie, in case you don't get the metaphor. Um, but yeah, that's why I could see it being on the list. But for myself, I think we talked in the podcast before, there was a lot of Scorsese stuff there. And the question is, like, is some of it superfluous? And I think some of it is. And if you have Casino and you have Goodfellas... I think that maybe having this is excessive. Um, and I think that, you know, Goodfellas has a stronger argument to be there, even though we'll come to a controversial point in the next round of questions. But Luke, would this be in your own personal 250? Um, <laughs> oh, silence. Yeah. <laughs> maybe add a Jesuit priest. Um, You're on the wrong um, podcast, well, Luke. Listeners, uh, we are extending Scorsese season by a week. Luke is going to come and talk to us about silence yeah. for two hours. And, and we, we, we need uh, we need Aoife as well to give a wild card. Um, if you're on, yeah. Um, actually, yeah, Aoife's practically a co-host. So yeah. any movie between now and 2020, 2013 and 2020. So you've got like Bob Dylan's like uh, Thunder Road review or Silence or the audition. 
So uh, we'll come back to you at the end of the podcast. But sorry, Luke. I don't know at the moment if I would put it in my top 250 list of all time. But if, if you gave me a few more rewatches <laughs> and a few more years. No, genuinely, because as I say, I, I've, I've only ever watched it in these very specific uh, contexts and kind of for assessment and stuff like that. And I think your own personal kind of list of your favorite films ever, you need a bit of time and you need a few watches for those films to kind of get their their hooks into you, you know. And there are, for all that I'm trying to, to kind of bat this film away, there are a few hooks that it, that it can get into you, you know. So ask me again in 10 years. How about that? <laughs> Scorsese says in 2030. Once I finally have a list of, for 250 films of all time. <laughs> um, I like that. I mean, ask me in, in like 20 years when I've watched it at least twice more. Um, but Aoife, what about yourself? I suspect we're reaching the point where you have to tip your hand on the visceral reaction. So would this be on your own personal 250? Um, no, it wouldn't. I mean, what, one of the things that this summer of Scorsese has done is it's made me go back and re-watch a lot of Scorsese's films um, and to sort of try and watch the ones I haven't seen. So I've I've got Quindon sitting here waiting, waiting to watch. Um, Fantastic. I need to watch uh, Bringing Out the Dead again. Um, and so I've been trying to sort of, you know, bring my Scorsese collection up to date. Um, there's still a few I haven't got, but um, I'm currently, they're currently winging their way towards me, I think. Um, so, no, I wouldn't put this in, in my top 250. Um, I had, like, like I said already, I had a very, very, um, Unusual reaction to this in that technically I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, I thought you know it got all the Scorsese trademarks from there. You know the, the soundtrack, the freeze frames, the um, the voiceover, the push zooms, all yeah. you know the zooms, everything that Scorsese does that you know that he does so brilliantly. The, the, the wonderful editing, and like I said, those three hours flew. But just being in these people's company for three hours was a horrible, horrible experience for me. Um, but the treatment of women in the film was absolutely appalling. And I don't know how anybody could stand over how the women were treated in that film. Um, there's a scene early on in the film, I don't want to get into spoilers, um, but you, you, probably, you probably know when we talk about it in the spoiler zone, that is absolutely horrific. Uh, it involves a woman being mistreated for money. And, um, and it, you know, it just, it made me feel physically ill, you know, so um, I just did not like it at all. You know, I can appreciate how brilliantly made it is, but thematically and subject matter, it's just terrible. I was just absolutely appalled by it. And Jason, what about yourself? Would it be on your own personal 250? <laughs> Interesting enough, it would, but I got to speak at Deepa's point in that regard. I probably agree with a lot of the things she says. I think it's a repulsive film. In many, many ways. Um, I think the people in it are horrible. I think the p- treatment of women in particular and Anybody anyone that isn't yeah. rich is appalling. Uh, and, you know, minorities, anyone, everyone that isn't white, male and successful is lower than Ponscombe in it. And they are horrid, horrid, horrid people. And I'll get into why it impressed me in lots of ways in that regard was simultaneously appalling me and I, I guess that push-pull is why I rate it as highly as I do, because I find it I find it absolutely disgusting as a film. And yet I'm absolutely, ins- I'm, I'm amazed that something with the people and the characters and the story it's telling, which is deeply unpleasant, 
is both a at points really entertaining, uh, uh, really funny, and really really grim. And I think politically, it's a lot that I want to talk about as well, and we'll get to that as well. But I, I won't get into it now. But I, I absolutely do. I think it would be in my best okay. films actually. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Yeah, I, I think, um, I think if it's if it's making a political point, I don't think it makes it very well, um, because I, I think, just like the um, kind of uh, Forbes kind of article in the movie that attacks um, uh, the the main character Jordan Balfour. I think this movie, um, if 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 there was a Stratton kind of Oakmont um, around, there, 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 it, I'd, 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 I'd say there is no, there's going to be no kind of um, shortage of, of young uh, men, especially kind of um, uh, signing up to 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 go join um, the the ranks to 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 go off to 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 Wall Street. It's a real kind of a a problem, I guess, in our society that the that the a lot of the brightest and the best are kind of told that um, that what you do after after college is is you is um, if you're if you're smart. It's, you don't kind of you know become a teacher or anything like that. You 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 go into these kinds of um, professions as as you and I know, Darren. <laughs> not, not not that we're um, kind of in in in, in the uh, uh, Wall Street. I feel like uh, I feel like Andrew's stuff. misrepresenting what well, podcast yeah. is. Like, that Forbes article was completely baseless. Um, it was it was a hatchet yeah. job, Andrew. <laughs> this is our day job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at least your at least exactly. your picture looks good. Yeah, yeah. No, um it 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 feels um it like it 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 wants me to like it because it is very funny and I did really enjoy it. It has a lot of those um kind of Scorsese uh moments, um, those very funny uh, moments, as, as some of which we've spoken about before in relation to other movies, but it it is horrible, and I don't think it's 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 horrible in a way that I can um, uh, forgive because it's like a lot of Scorsese movies. It 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 it's, it inspires more admiration than than revulsion, in spite of being thoroughly disgusting. So the, the, the yeah, um, yeah, because like like you you do kind of men men are going to not be um, um, turned off by the the well a lot of men anyway so are not going to be turned off by the depiction of of this because it is very glamorous and it is very sexy as well as there being um so much um abuse and and disgust within it so yeah it it it, it, it wouldn't be on on my top 250 it it's 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 um it's it's in spite of it being so so like it, it, it remarkably entertaining at the same time um 
yeah, no, it it it, it wouldn't. And, and and I don't want to moralize too much, like but but. Oh, don't it, worry, we'll it, be doing that in the spoilers. Just a bit close. Me, I, I, we, we, yeah, I have yeah, notes, exactly, and, exactly. and I suspect. And 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 there's there's kind of details of the the uh, kind of the uh, background of the movie that make it kind of almost meta textual. Um, yeah, that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Spoilers but, for yeah, Malaysia's internal political system. Further problems. Yeah. Um. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, and the 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 whole kind of and not even just no. that, but other aspects involving other perhaps about... the real life Belfort and things like that that we can talk about. Separately yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's not just what what the money, uh, where the money came from to make the movie is kind of where did the money um, go to um, that was made from the movie. Um, yeah, as well and stuff like that. So yeah, I I feel I feel like the, this movie is complicit the things that it's supposedly kind of um uh, satirizing um and that it, it loses a lot um for 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 that this is interesting for myself because i this is where darren says i love that andrew's just taking a drink ready for a spit take um i think that when we mentioned <laughs> we talked about goodfellas i always admired goodfellas more than i liked it and when we talked about goodfellas my big resounding issue of Goodfellas was that Henry Hill was a complete scumbag that was, you know, generally presented as charming that people would absolutely love to. And people seem to genuinely like on a certain level. Beautiful, beautiful pistol whipping angel, erotic pistol whipping angel. Um, <laughs> and I think that like what I, I might actually slightly prefer the Wolf of Wall Street academically to Goodfellas because it captures the sense in which Jordan Belford is a genuine scumbag of a human being where it takes the character of Henry Hill as he appears at certain points in Goodfellas and strips out anything that I would consider to be that kind of romantic fetishization of kind of masculinity where he's he's brutal towards women he's a terrible human being but he's also a complete coward he has no spine whatsoever there's no erotic pistol whipping here there's no real redemption for him he's he is you know the description early in the film is you're lower than pond scum which is you know meant to illustrate how terrible the wall street environment is but which is a pretty accurate description of jordan belford as a human being watching it i do feel that incredibly strong revulsion towards him and it's remarkable that like the characters in goodfellas and i mean the characters in casino i would argue are a different thing but the same sensation which is you're watching them and you know they're terrible people but you get kind of drawn into them there there is that kind of warmth that we talked about in goodfellas where you're kind of almost welcomed into their world with the wolf of wall street you've got a similar environment it's very testosterone driven it's very you know, stereotypically macho in that there are lots of people doing weights and doing drugs and talking about how much they enjoy having sex and how much they know about all these things and they they have all this power that's concentrated in them and where they do and how there are no penalties or consequences for what they choose to do, but without any of the romanticization of the gangster film in that, like, I watch this and my skin wants to crawl off me. Like, it is genuine revulsion. And I think that's a remarkable feat in that it's basically the same template of Goodfellas, the same study of a certain type of machismo or masculine identity, but without, for me at least, uh, any of the kind of romantic fantasy that I look at somebody like Belford or I look at somebody like Donnie and I go, that's just a repugnant, like, it's a void that walks like a man. Um, it's I just... Mean, 
I completely agree, Darren. Yeah. It's, it's a different kind of fantasy, though. It's less kind of... Um, there's less of a sort of a romance to it and more kind of naked tan blondes with landing strips <laughs> and um like you know that 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 because just like it romanticism wouldn't be the right word for it but it's definitely a sort of um wish fulfillment and a fantasy for 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 other people not in the same way I think, I think part, part of the problem is that, I mean, you, you're comparing it there to, to Goodfellas, and part of the problem is that Goodfellas is romanticised in that, you know, the audience probably doesn't know people like Henry Hill, but we all know people like Jordan Belfort. We're living in an era where, you know, where capitalism, where greed is good, where, you know, it's all about money, and we're living in, you know, we have a government that agrees with this as well, and... You know, we're, we're living through this at the moment and we're living through the, the political consequences of this for the moment which which for me is probably why it's very very close to the bone we're living in an era where um you know where you know countries are lurching to the right where women are being oppressed where you know minorities are being oppressed and you know watching a film like this which uh, you know i'm not saying it celebrates a lot i don't i'm not saying for one second that scorsese believes in this lifestyle that he's celebrating this lifestyle but there are people out there watching this film who think wow i want to live like that why can't i yeah. be like that you know i think it does you know i think that i think that's problematic and I again that's, I that's not the film's fault though i mean the, how people view something mm. i don't think i don't think the films are responsible i think these people exist in real life so, i don't I mean I don't, I'm not sure how the film I has to... I don't think all films have to be morally... No, no, absolutely. I completely agree, but I think that's what, what caused my reaction to it. You know, I'm not, I'm not yeah, saying... No, you know, I don't, I don't think... Absolutely, I mean, I wouldn't change the film for a bit. Like, I mean, absolutely, I, I'm glad I yeah. watched it. I would probably watch it again at some point. Um, I, might, I might have a different reaction the next time I watch it, but I just think that, you know, I think that's what has caused my visceral reaction to it or part of the reason I reacted so badly to it. Oh yeah, that's fair, and I, I do want to get into it when we get into it because there, yeah. there's something in that I think that's really important here. Yeah, um, and and just briefly to Eva's point because I think you you are entirely correct, and it does cut close to the bone, and I think that's why it feels particularly sort of stronger about it, and why I think it's more important that the characters are as like repulsive as they are, because I think that like with Goodfellas there is the romance of you know not to stereotype, but many of us I imagine do not know people who are actively involved in organized crime at high levels um involved in the Lufthansa heist and stuff like that so it is exotic and it is interesting and it's very much along the lines of well these are figures who exist almost in a literal other world and it becomes this kind of like fantasy of masculinity that is for a lot of people who did not grow up in the environment that Scorsese did like exists at a remove that kind of dorm room poster effect like, I would argue that the people who, you know, inverted commas, misunderstand Wolf of Wall Street are the same people who misunderstand Goodfellas and are more likely in that case to have a Goodfellas poster in I their dorm room know, than a Wolf of Wall Street. There's okay. a willful misunderstanding going on here a lot of the time. When we, and it, you see it with Fight Club, you see it with a billion other things, you see it with Scarface, you see it with whatever you want. There's a willful misunderstanding because you have your biases and your way of viewing the world that these confirm as opposed to the film making you think that way. Do you know what I mean? That the, the the moral viewpoint comes before the film, and the film just confirms it. As opposed to, I watched this film. I was an altar boy before. Ergo, now I just want to go to Wall Street and win money. <laughs> but like, I, I, you know, I think that I think that's an important distinction, as obvious as it may seem. Yeah. I think it, it's actually quite important because I think you get into 
films being the moral arbiter of our time you know yeah. this is the reason why we had this with computer games we've had it with explicit lyrics on music we've had it with very comic I, books it's yeah, not specifically yeah, exactly. I'm, not, yeah. like, I'm not saying I, anybody's saying that here but I think I think it's interesting how depiction and causation on how people view material like this is interesting and the engagement around it yeah, and I do think that it's interesting that it arrived when it did in 2013. I think there's a lot to talk about in this war zone. But yeah, that that just my kind of bullet point summary is it might be in my 250. I think I might actually admire it more than I admire Goodfellas because I feel like it's doing the same thing as Goodfellas but stripping out any of the romance of it, which I admire as somebody who never found Henry Hill as charming or as erotic pistol would be as other people did. It's like, poor Jen, finally... Poor Jen Gadden is going to be ears <laughs> burning off for that last comment. <laughs> it's like, finally, Scorsese sees this kind of man as he yeah. is. And it's yeah. as Jordan Belfort. You had your chance, Darren, to make your arguments against Henry Hill. <laughs> and it was agreed that you were wrong. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but you know what the great thing is Andrew time, my arguments are like Scorsese film time vindicates them all um, <laughs> here we are 30 what is it sorry, 23 years later and I'm making the argument yeah. again but yeah no okay you, fine you, fine but no, my argument like though is, is more than like Scorsese Darren found an old bottle of his opinions <laughs> really good stuff you know <laughs> it aged like fine wine well no because it's what i talked about with with ace rothstein as well where ace rothstein is great because he's that you know he's that kind of guy but he's boring so like film bros don't latch on to them like they do with henry hill and jordan belford is that kind of guy except he looks like if you touched him he'd be sticky um so like you know i and i think that's i think that's like legitimately something that is impressive that scorsese did but that that's anyway that's that's darren opinions 1990 in a bottle with a cork and it's shoved in the in the closet so final round then uh before we jump to the spoiler zone luke if listeners have not seen wolf of wall street would you recommend that they watch it Uh, yes i would because i think whether or not you i think it's 50 50 whether you come away from it um either enjoying it or having that kind of uh, a similar reaction to to what Eva has described and I, I can understand both of those but I think it is worth watching films like this that present you with something so morally repugnant and so, and so off-putting from time to time um, I, 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 I think if you want to have kind of that comprehensive kind of uh, look at, at art isn't always like you shouldn't always um, reject a film uh, outright or, or kind of not watch a film because exactly, yeah. you think that you, you might not like the ideas in it or what it's trying to say or or, or things like that. Because I, I I think if, if you then watch it and, and, and have those those opinions of it, I think that's fine. But I think this is definitely a film worth watching to to kind of confront those ideas and to and to confront your own kind of perspective on people like this because they are very present in our lives yeah <laughs> and, it, and it is it is worth trying either to understand them which may be impossible or 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 at the very least to understand um where you stand in relation to you know so in that sense i would say yes uh-huh. to get a glimpse into that reptile brain um 
And what about yourself, Eva? Would you recommend that that listeners watch watch the movie? Yeah, no, absolutely. I would I would definitely recommend it. Um, just because I had a certain reaction to it does not mean every else will have a similar reaction. And even if they did have a similar reaction, I mean, so what? It just shows that you know the film is is possibly doing its job. Like you know, I also you know despite being you know repelled by the film, I was also it also made me laugh. I was also I also found it quite exciting. Um, and like I said, the, the three hours flew by. So yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's you know I would recommend watching any Scorsese film. You know, and this one is 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 no different. It has it's got it's got all his tricks there. It's 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 got a great soundtrack. It's it's beautifully edited, wonderfully filmed. It's very funny. It's very darkly funny. But you know, it's it had um, certain reactions for me that other people might not get. But other people might also get as well, and that's fine. You know, we, we shouldn't, you know, films don't have to make us, you know, we don't have to necessarily like the characters in films. We don't have to necessarily like the subject matter. Um, but, you know, watching things that make, make us uncomfortable is is a good thing, I think. And, you know, it makes us sort of check in with ourselves. We can't all watch films that have happy endings and nice characters and nice people and, you know, certain character arcs. Um, this one is probably very vacuous and shallow in many ways, just like the characters it portrays. But definitely, I would I would recommend people watch it. Back with your own opinion. And Jay, what about yourself? Yes. Get out of here! Watch it, you bum. Yeah. And and Andrew. Yeah. No, I I I agree with I agree with what um, a lot of what Eva said. Like that while while I while I kind of. maybe to a lesser extent, a a sort of a negative reaction to that. While I don't want to celebrate this movie, I do want to recommend it. I'm not saying it's it's an immoral movie, so it's dangerous for people to watch it or anything like that. Kids these days exactly, with their rock yeah, and yeah. roll, no, like, gathered around smartphones, watching The Wolf of Wall Street on street corners, <laughs> clicking their fingers, and, and it's like, selling penny stocks. And it's 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 <laughs> like Scorsese. Scorsese knows what he's doing. He's he's not uncovering kind of um, the kind of reality of it because in in the world of the movie like several times as he's trying to explain <laughs> something he'll say like i actually it doesn't matter <laughs> like you know you the, the, don't the, care so, crucially as yeah, well you yeah you don't care about this yeah 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 which 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 is which is very much kind of uh scorsese kind of refusing to um uh, kind of lurch into the edifying sort of space that you maybe think yeah 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 that this movie might yeah didactic is probably a better word but no i would recommend people would watch it it's very funny i think um um i think jonah hill is incredible in it Um, oscar two-time oscar nominee jonah hill yeah no he's he's tremendous um very funny um in this uh, bro. <laughs> <laughs> there there was smoking crack in spite of in, in spite of being rich that's that's yeah. like it has to be inappropriate uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> But yeah, it, it, was, it was. I love that. That's that's our podcast <laughs> segment: inappropriate crack usage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Only smoke crack if you're poor, people. We, we, we just, Thank you, Jordan. Just, apparently, yeah, we just want you to come away from. It's, 
if you if you spectrum, learn one thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But he he's he's just so good. It is so many lines. Like even the I don't think he spoils it. The the <laughs> like um, never never eaten a Benny Hanna again. I don't, <laughs> don't care whose birthday it is. <laughs> and like lines like that, probably I don't think they would have. They would be as hilarious, kind of maybe delivered by somebody else. I, I think he he, yeah. he knocks so much of this out of the park and all the stuff about like his wife and all that sort of thing is is just his cousin. Um, <laughs> it's great. Your cousin. So yeah, and I like I'm laughing thinking about it, and I'd I'd, I'd recommend like uh, uh, people people watch it because it's 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 great. Um, I'd I'd say it's a very good chance that, that somebody stops the podcast, watches it now, after Darren tells you what he thinks of it, <laughs> um, that you'll enjoy it. So yeah, yeah, I, I would recommend. Um, it. Ironically enough, I'm going to be the iffy. I'm going to sit on the fence here, like the set of us, and say, "Yeah, I know." After all that, it's like, "Yes, it definitely is one of my top 250 favorite movies ever." But um, I actually, yeah, I, I do think that there's there's moments why I think like Eva's reaction is entirely valid. Um, I think like at the moment, particularly with the way things are in the world, maybe there's a good reason for not wanting to watch a movie that's ex- explains. No, if if not precisely why the world is as screwed up as it is, the mindsets of a lot of the people who have made the world as screwed up as it is. Yeah. I can understand maybe not wanting to spend three hours in that headspace. Say, but I do think it is a... Fan- oh, sorry, sorry. I, I was going to say, maybe wait two or three years until the world is fixed. and then, Everything's fixed. And then come yeah. back and watch it and, and be like... As a historical remember document Remember how things, things used to be, like, before, there was, before we established before we all this capitalism. equality. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. Address early and watch it on your phone on the subway <laughs> <laughs> with your sweaty balls. <laughs> you know, it all, all worked out perfectly. We'll all have sweaty balls in the future. Yeah, uh, figuratively speaking. I, I love that. Yeah, we were promised a jetpack future, and we end up with a sweaty ball future. Um, but yeah, if if you can get past that complaint, and I understand that you know a lot of people won't, I think that yes, it's absolutely worth watching. I think it's a powerhouse piece of cinema. Um, it is three hours, but it flies by um it is made with a vim and vigor of a director like he was 71 years old when he made this movie um and there are directors in their 20s who could not make a movie that is as energetic or as flighty or as just sheer propulsive as the movie that this is um so yeah no i i would recommend it but with that caveat that it's entire. I I think it's entirely understandable to have the reaction that Eva had to the even to the idea of the movie, let alone the movie itself. So you know, don't feel like you're obligated to watch it. And if the the concept does sound repulsive, particularly at the moment, take a breather. Go watch Kundan. Go watch Silence. Go watch Hugo, which we talked about last week. Um, but yeah, like there, you know, don't don't feel you have to immerse yourself in this world of terrible people. But if you do, then yeah, absolutely, I wholeheartedly recommend it. Uh, with that in mind, then we will jump neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So, Luke, what is The Wolf of Wall Street about for you? Um, the Wolf of Wall Street is like. What if Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was told from the perspective of Richard Nixon? (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, it is, is, it is from, from the opening moments uh, in which, you know, a, a sports car is speeding down the highway and, and Jordan Belfort interjects to point out that the car was white. Like, like Don Johnson's from Miami Vice. The, the, from that moment until the final kind of pan back to the crowd uh, in New Zealand at the very end, it is a film about rooting you deep, deep, deep in the perspective of an utterly hollow man um, with <laughs> no... It, it's almost redundant to say he has no moral compass. Um, he's, he, he's so far beyond that. But he he's just an utterly repugnant, utterly empty, um, utterly miserable, utterly shallow person. Um, and it, it it's it's about kind of showing you how narrow his kind of vision is and, and, and how harmful he can be because his perspective is is so very uh, so very self-interested and, 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 and so very incapable of, of anything of seeing anything beyond what's right in front of his, his own face, which is probably his reflection. In his <laughs> um, what is actually you you mentioned the the scene where the Ferrari kind of flips colors as he's narrating, but even before that, like it's notable how much of Wolf of Wall Street is advertising. Like the opening segues neatly from the Universal logo if you're watching the international version, or the Paramount if you're watching the American version, and the red granite logos into an advertisement for Stratton Oakmont, yeah. which is shot in a 4.3 aspect ratio, like you're watching that commercial. As he guides you through his life, immediately following that sequence with the Ferrari, and this is something I actually only picked up on recent rewatches, um, and it speaks to what Aoife was talking about the film's treatment of women. When you're introduced to his wife, Naomi, if you listen very carefully to the soundtrack, you can hear the voiceover that plays later when they're advertising the yacht called Naomi um, as well, because it's very much he is literally selling you this woman. He's putting her in front of your gaze and selling her to you in the way that he'll sell the yacht. You have the advertisement for the yacht later on. And you also have the interrupted advertisement for his speaking uh, seminars as well. When, like, the police literally arrive in the middle of filming the, off the helicopter. That, w- that was a very Scorsese moment. Yeah. It was it, it's and, like, you know. like, like the in Casino. The, it'd be... <laughs> exactly. Oh, where the yeah, baseball yeah. hat comes in in mid-voiceover. <laughs> it's like the cops Sorry, arrive really. mid-infomercial. And, um, and, and, like, Naomi to Jordan is, is just another object for him to own yeah. and just more more evidence of his own success and and you know more, just more of an opportunity to build up his own um legend and i think everything for jordan belfort is about building up your your bank account and, and and building up your possessions to build up your own legend because i think he needs to have a legend around him because there's just there's nothing else there like his the fact that he just can't be sober is something that is very significant and and it's one of the big ways in which the film lets kind of Belfort tell on himself like when he's going through that big list of of all the drugs that he does uh, every day to As him, he's getting his limo, yeah. to him that's just kind of bluster and, and I think it is worth kind of saying that everything that he says is probably worth taking with a, a, a massive heap of salt and it's like I'm sure that he did do a lot of drugs <laughs> 
but whether he did quite the like wh whether everything that he says in the story is exactly how he says it i think is probably very questionable but that he sees that as something so fun and cool and exciting and that he would like to and to a great extent did live that way um is it evidence that like he can't be just himself um like he 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 has to accrue so much material stuff uh no matter what it does to kind of anyone else around him or even anyone else in the world like we never see the victims of of belfort's uh schemes and stuff in this movie i mean we see his wives we might talk about his victims in the, yeah. that's true his yeah. financial yeah. schemes his, his, we never have uh, victims of that i suppose okay well, well yeah or, it's probably then we'll, we'll talk then. about the victims now and come back to the hollowness of belford in a moment but yeah it, it's worth noting that like one of the big criticisms of the movie and it, it's something that comes up quite a bit when we talk about Scorsese movies. I think it came up when we talked about uh, Gangs of New York as well, where it was like, it's a Civil War movie, except there is one African-American character in the background. It's about race riots in New York, and there's a single African-American character in it, that sort of thing. Here, it's this is a movie about financial embezzlement, but his victims are kept largely off screen. Um, but but I, I would say, like, I, I think that that's a decision yeah. that makes sense. And, and, and I, I, I think... The film would be worse off, I think, if it did show the victims of, of what Belfort did, because the film, like from that first moment with the Ferrari, the film is very clear, clearly saying this is his perspective on things. And it's like he doesn't think of these people at all. Yeah. Um, there's so, a really great moment where he talks about like that seat with the Ferrari kind of like that that the Ferrari is a great example of this because later on there's a sequence where he's at the kind of wasp club the golf club where he goes to make the or the social club where he goes to make the phone call and he gets in the Ferrari and he goes driving um, and he basically kind of he says you know was it uh, oh thank goodness I managed to get there with myself and the Ferrari completely intact and there's absolutely no sense from Belford that by getting into a car absolutely stoned off his gourd that he was putting other people at risk the only thing that matters is himself and then also even within that scene then you have the juxtaposition of again his version of events which is he drove very slowly one mile an hour and got home without a dent on himself in the car and then the following morning the police show up and they take him outside and there's just this trail of destruction and wreckage that he's wrought and it's again but, almost feels like a kind of a metaphorical expression of the, how the, belford moves through the world where he just leaves this trail of destruction that his narrative conveniently the, the, the movie is complicit in that as well because like he's allowed to say about the movie like any money i get from us i'm going to pay in restitution to my victims the same way you said about the the, the book that um the movie was based on and that and that that's been kind of found not to be not to be true at all that, that, that of the of the 110 million that 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 he um was found to owe to his victims um i, I think kind of there there, there was one a, and not too long ago, there was still like kind of 97 million um, due on that debt. And a lot of the money that he's been making hasn't been going to it. Not that he's not paying it back. He is, but... Um, not in any sense as a priority. Yeah, yeah. And not, and not, not in an honest way, because uh, like, like talking about he has made millions from the book and this, and that that, that sort of money hasn't gone back to... To your victims, as he as 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 he said, it it would do. So it's not just it's not just a movie that 
shows his version of um, events and then shows you that it's wrong. It's also um, something that has aided his own kind of myth-making yeah. and lie-telling. Yeah, I think um, this. That's, I think that's one of the more interesting and complicated aspects of the movie and where things get really thorny because it has been used as Belford as a selling tool for his self-help seminars uh, to build him up as a motivational speaker as part of his brand. It's allowed him to get interviews in places like Vulture where he will shill his self-help groups and his books and his philosophies and things like that to readers who would not have come across them if not for the fact that there was a $300 million movie uh, coming out covering it i think that's where the wolf of wall street does get thorny again this is very much like the joker moral panic where the actual moral panic over the film isn't necessarily important at all but the fact that it might have paid royalties to gary glitter for the use of like was it gang number two or whatever or song number two that's where the actual thorny ethical stuff is here i think there is legitimately something to worry about the film say you know the cameo of belford at the end which is you know kind of puts him on mm. screen turns him into a celebrity um the fact that he ended up doing a lot of press coverage for it as well the fact that you know now to be fair scorsese is very clever in his interviews and he avoids mentioning belford directly dicaprio is a lot more oh well look he's made he's done his time i'm, I'm not here to say he's a good person or a bad person but he's volunteered to pay everybody back and all this sort of stuff where there's a lot of whitewashing of belford that happens kind of i will say though yeah. i think the the one of the main problems I have, I, I agree with a lot of that. I, I don't think he should have had a cameo in the film. I that like personally speaking, I think that's a step too far. I think I think white collar crime, you pretty much get away with it all of the time anyway. Regardless of the film, people never get paid back from white collar crime and frequently make more money. It happens in Ireland, it happens in America. I think this film is just a continuation of Scarsese's obsession with the kind of and it is myth making and it is this kind of glorious uh capitalism run amok that has happened and i i don't think you see any real difference between the gangsters and goodfellas and the people here except the, the shiny suits aspects of it and i and i point out like your kind of disney make money making practices the hollywood money making practice last 100 years where people don't get paid properly ever uh, and get scammed. I mean, and it is worth noting as well. We, we we talked about like Goodfellas, where they actually brought in casino, uh, sorry, gangsters by the busload and paid them money for their appearances. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every, every gangster film yeah. has had gangsters working on it, via yeah. teamsters, via whatever. It's yeah. like they've got so, paid properly, and all uh, pretty yeah. much every the Godfather. And that's money it. going to to them who are also organized criminals as well. And and but they, yeah, it's, it's yeah. This this is because they forever, need like. the money. That sort of organized. <laughs> It's because that sort of organized crime isn't as sustainable as the sort of crime you see in this movie. Um, I, I will point out that like, if Belfort did go to prison, and it is a country club hmm. prison, and got out, but I yeah. mean, there's criminals. His roommate there. was Tommy Chong. Yeah. There you and go. Tommy Chong convinced him to write the book. like From Cheech and Chong? Yeah, yeah, he was in prison for selling like uh, marijuana over the internet, basically. Um, and so what? Belfort was his roommate, and he would Tommy? like... Like, surely Tommy Chong gets a pass. <laughs> but I do think, though, it, I think it's worth mentioning, and I mentioned this when I, re I reviewed it for Scanlon at the time when it came out, um, I, like, there are people that caused a financial crash in Ireland that went to America, got cleaned off the bankruptcy, came back and are still making millions now as we speak. Yeah. And without any hindrance. 
in the, and like don't Belfort was and will and every white collar criminal that gets away with these things does and will make money from it and hide money from victims as they have always done because capitalism allows this to happen constantly. Now you can argue about Scorsese's moral thing for putting them in the film or but, but I think if anybody's alive and you're making films about them there's a bounce no matter what no matter what they're selling it, and I think that's it. It's a wash with corruption though this movie and it, it, it kind of like Oh, no, no, Malaysia. Let's talk about Malaysia. Yeah, have you heard about this? Did you you see in the yes. in the credits that uh, uh, Riza Aziz is 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 one of the kind of named producers about this? Now he wasn't the only one. You see in kind of um, in in Leo in 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 Leo's kind of um, uh, awards speeches. Kind of, um, he's thanking like all of the kind of big hitters in the the one Malaysia <laughs> development Burhad who aren't in the credits, like people like Joe Low, um, like the, the, the basically notorious um, uh, pe- people who are gu- guilty of notorious kind of um, corruption. The, 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 Basically, what 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 happened with this his in, in involvement? It's 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 about tens of millions of dollars of um, Malaysian um, taxpayers' money diverted from a sovereign wealth fund. That's uh, where do you think all the money comes for every corporate business that makes movies? Where does Netflix's yeah. come from? I mean, well, yeah, yeah, I suppose. I suppose the to. At, at least they're, they're raising billions. At on. least, at least with Wolf of Wall Street, maybe they made it back. But they, <laughs> they, they also, they also financed Dumb and Dumber <laughs> too. And uh, that, there's the real and, cinematic and, crime. And that <laughs> there's the real and Daddy, there's the real Daddy's crime right there. Well. <laughs> so, so it's, a, it's not, it's not the worst uh, crime that that he's uh, been being accused of. Don't be wrong. This is all horrible. Like it's yeah. a horrible thing. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with that. Like washing money this way is horrible. No matter who does it, Scorsese, from wherever it comes from, it's disgusting. But it, to say that it's not going on in, in probably practically every production that deals are made for filmmaking or any kind of capitalist endeavor, you know, this is this is was forever thus and always will be. I'd suggest. Mm. Yeah, What's... I guess they didn't do a very good job of the money laundering. <laughs> they <laughs> laundered it properly enough. Because <laughs> it's very much at the front of it, kind of like it's yeah, used yeah. by... Yeah, front loaded the information. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which probably, which, which kind of fits thematically with the film, in fairness. <laughs> yeah. It's not quite as exciting as money laundering through speedboat racing, but you know, it's... No, it's... Let me let me explain how one Malaysia developed. Actually, that's boring. <laughs> you don't care about that. The important thing is that the investigation is still on going um this actually brings us us neatly to the controversy around it because i find this fascinating so this was released in december 2013 um and somehow managed to despite being 71 years old despite the fact that as we mentioned i think when we talked about the departed and we mentioned with shutter island the fact that scorsese had arguably become like a filmmaker with his own style of filmmaking and become a cinematic institution and kind of therefore logically cast off the reputation as kind of enfant terrible that he'd been with, you know, um, you know, with, with movies like Taxi Driver or Raging Bull. 
Um, he managed to generate a huge amount of controversy with this film. Uh, famously at the Academy screening uh, that he hosted for, for, the, uh, for Ampus, there were people shouting, shame on you, shame on you. There were people walking out. He was accosted by writers and by older actors. Uh, in fact, I think actor Hope Holiday from the 1950s or 1960s would go on and decry the movie and say in interviews around the Academy screening, it was torture, three hours of torture, the same disgusting crap over and over again. After the film, they had a discussion which a lot of us didn't stay for. It was disgusting. People ran over to them and started shouting and screaming, shame on you, disgusting. And it's kind of it is interesting. <laughs> it is. Yeah, but 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 it's it's interesting that like Scorsese, like this far into his career as a cinematic institution, as a man who won Best Picture and Best Direct, sorry, Best Director and Best Picture, you know, what seven years before this, still has the capacity to shock it's what he, it's and, and catch people. He's always done. He's like he almost self sabotaged yeah. in a lot of way, and then the success is almost an accident. <laughs> <laughs> Like that, this film made yeah. as much money as it is absurd. Absolutely absurd. Yeah. There's no logical reason for an ATN certificate three hour film should never have made any money. $350 million worldwide, Jay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's, it's a, fr- a, a front for a, a, a criminal fraud. It, doesn't, it didn't need to make money. No, it didn't. <laughs> it just needed it's to like cover the expenses. I, I love the idea of the local Wall Street is like a producer situation. Because, uh, okay, but it, I do find that kind of fascinating. And Scorsese's talked about this, ha- how he consciously avoided moralizing with the film. So he avoided giving you characters who exist largely to tell you that, you know, what Jordan Belford is doing is morally wrong. I think he, I Although think I would he did argue do that. that. I think he did. Say I, I, yeah, I, th- I think there are two characters who show up to do that. One of whom is America's favorite stepdad, Kyle Chandler, yes. which is great. Because if it's one of the, like, if you want to chart a difference between, like, Scorsese, that's it. If you want to chart a difference between Scorsese and, like, Spielberg as filmmakers, you know, Spielberg hires Tom Hanks to come in and tell Leonardo DiCaprio that he's got to straighten up and fly right and scorsese's like no you don't get america's dad you get america's try hard washed up sweaty balls stepdad who's gonna show up and give you a stern talking to and you also have rob rayner show up as well who quite literally says this is not (laughs) (laughs) the enforcer mad max Um, but like you do have characters show up and say look this is not sustainable this is not cool but they don't dominate the narrative and they don't get the final word and in fact the movie makes a point to illustrate that Jordan Belford is still out there making money and I think what Scorsese said and I I think this is interesting I'm not sure if I entirely agree with it and I'm kind of curious what Luke and maybe Aoife think about this is that like what Scorsese said was people are right to be angry about this movie and they're right to have that strong visceral repulsive kind of like my gut is churning and I'm sick reaction to this because none of the people involved in the financial scandal of 2008 actually went to prison none of them actually paid for it all of them walked away scot-free so you're watching this movie and you're seeing these people doing these terrible things and they're getting away with it you should be angry. Um, and like, if you're angry because you've seen this movie, because you know, the, the mean, the news isn't covering it in as much depth as it should, or because you're not following the story as it's actually playing out, then maybe the movie has done something worthwhile. Is that a fair argument? Do we think, or is that Scorsese kind of shrugging off responsibility and saying, eh, I'd say it's the latter. Like if, 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 if he, if he wanted to, like, no, no, I, I, I don't, 
I don't think he gets a pass. I, I think he, I think, I think like, like, I think he's trying to, um, um, to um, kind of abdicate responsibility um, on this paper. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think if, um, I sort of disagree with Luke in one sense in that we have no sense of who the victims are in this film. I mean, even even a, a card at the end saying, you know, this, you know, Jordan Belfort's victims, you know, lost X amount of money and he is still repaying them or or whatever. You know, some sort of historical context would have been good. Um, like more than likely some of his victims killed themselves. You know, we we're talking, you know, we're not just talking financial victims here, we're talking people who, who have probably taken their own lives because of financial ruin, because of Jordan Belfort, who also got a part in this film, who, you know, whose star has begun to rise again, partly in, because of this film. Um, and I think that's a problem. I don't think Scorsese can wash his hands of it as easily as that. I mean, there's no, there's no sort of context to, to who Belfort is. You know, everything we see is from his point of view. He's probably a very, very unreliable narrator. In fact, he is a very unreliable narrator, but we never get the counterpoint. You know, you know what I mean? We never get to see it from, from say, the Kyle Chandler Do we know it though from the Kyle no, Chandler point any of other... In the sense that, like, even Kyle Chandler's victory, in inverted commas, and he's still sitting on the subway, and he's still miserable, and he's still got sweaty balls. It, and Notably, way, the and... only set of balls we don't see in the film, but we just yes, trust that indeed. they're sweaty. But um... I, I think he's, he, there's a the hollowest of victories in it, in the sense that, the working man or whatever in inverted commas that he's, he's, he's considered in this in the context of everyone else in it gets mm -hmm. to go home and have nothing but, whilst the people that exploit it get away with a scot free. No, I, I, dis I disagree. I disagree. I think I, I looked at you know, the, the Kyle Sandwich scene of him sitting on the subway on the way home. You go, yeah, that's the person I want. Well, I completely to agree. What I'm, what I'm saying no, is I in think... the context of victimhood yeah. in terms of it'll be people your average person on train will always be the victim of every rich white guy in mm. the world in this regard. And as I pointed out earlier, it's happened in Ireland and people that got lost out on everything. And then the people that are still doing it are still knocking about. This has always been yeah. like the victims are the people who are always the victims in this the same way. And it will be again in five years time or 10 years time. And they'll still get away mm. with it again, five years time, yeah. 10 years time. But of course, I would it yeah. matter if you had a card about the victims. Yet, but I don't know. I don't know if it made a difference because we know what we know what's going to happen. They get away. He, he, he explicitly says in the film, "I thought I was in prison for a moment. There, I was terrified. Then I remembered I was rich, and he and hits that's, a tennis shot. And, they, and like, that's, that's the ultimate sickening part of it. That's not. That's not even the first time that it happens. There's a moment where no, they're no. on the plane, and he's like, "You call the captain the N word," and he's like, yeah, I, I know, called yeah. the captain the N word," and it's like, "Yeah, you're lucky we're in first class." Which again, yes. very much kind of sets up that idea that because we're rich, there are no consequences to our I actions. Swear to say, or you can save the spotted L with money. Oh yeah, you can become a good person. It can make you a better yeah. person. Um, you know yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, oh, completely. Like, it's like, hard. Like, that, like it's hard, people. Yeah. I saw a thing as well online when I was kind of googling around this movie. The um, ex-boyfriend of um, of his wife and this. The, the one the one who's at the party when are you gonna ask her if she's ever jet skied before again yeah I might exactly. ask her a few more times <laughs> he was he was annoyed about his portrayal in the movie <laughs> and, ha and hadn't seen the movie I just heard 
that he seemed like a bit of a um, like uh, a wimp or a nerd or a jerk in it. And then he he wrote this. It's like if can somebody like watch the movie and tell me kind of like and like send me like a screenshot because I want to see and like if if send me on a screenshot and I'll, I'll give like a thousand dollars to um like your charity like name a charity and I'll, I'll i'll do it like this idea that it's like this complete and he's complaining about like and I, i've heard it doesn't even show it doesn't show me coming in in the testarossa like even though <laughs> somebody told, has told me that like it shows his lamborghini but it doesn't show my testarossa it makes me look like a nerd and like i would have never shown her it brought her on a jet ski <laughs> it's like, these are these are the kind of people. These are the kind of people they are. Well, I mean, yeah. I think, I mean, like to be fair, like but, you but, know what Jordan but, Belfort's complaint about the movie is. Like one of his big complaints is that his first wife Teresa uh, Petriello looked much hotter than she was in the film, who's played by oh Kristen God. Milioti. Like, but like this is very much like Belford not really reading the room. It's like I felt like Scorsese did a lot of things right, but he didn't capture the hotness of my first wife. She's just played by the mother, you know, a Hollywood actress. You know, she's not smoking hot, and it's like Jesus. But it's it, the, yeah, the, the, the sorry, sorry, Adam, but, but at that point, again, towards the misogyny, not only in the film but of Jordan Belford himself. I mean the. Yeah, the, the scene I referred to earlier where the woman gets her head shaved uh, at the very start. I mean, that's... Oh, that's a horrible scene. That's yeah. horrific. And yet there's no, you know, there's there's no sort of condemnation of that. It's just, it just happens and we never hear about this woman ever again. And I, I, you know, I, I, I agree to a certain point. I, I think there is I, condemnation of it in the sense that it's all a hellhole. It's all gross. There's like nothing it, fun about it. Yeah. But I, I googled, you know, I said, you know, why, why aren't people talking about this woman or this scene more? And I googled it and I saw, read an interview with one of the um, sort of the makeup effects people are working at. That woman actually had her head shaved on film because they couldn't afford, you know, the skull caps and wigs necessary to do it, you know, artificially. So they actually paid an actress, and she wasn't a real actress. She was just a, you know, just someone who, who was a friend of, you know, of. Leonardo DiCaprio's girlfriend's sister, I think, or something, and they paid her to have her head really shaved for the film. I mean, to me, that's hugely problematic, you know. And you know, and I don't think you know, Scorsese didn't watch that scene. He just sat behind his video monitor as he does, and he didn't speak to the actress beforehand or afterwards. That was it, you know. So I think that's hugely problematic. I don't know. I I thought watching it, I I found it incredibly revolting. I thought like it was incredibly mm. stomach turning. I think it, it is, but there's no like... there's no consequences to it, you know. And you never hear about that character ever again. But there's no yeah, consequences and, and for they... that victim, though, ever. But what? Why is it I, there? I, what? What does it? I you think... know, we already know these guys are are misogynistic assholes. Why? Why that scene? I think I I I agree with Darren to a certain extent. I think it kind of underlines because it does really kind of linger on us. Yeah. It's not like something where she's kind of like is... pretending to smile, but she's crying. Like she's like you can see that she's pretending to be happy, but is like actually feeling terrible about what's happening. I th um, yeah, like 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 I think I th in fairness to Scorsese, I think the reaction of disgust is very much kind of like what he's what he's kind of um, uh, looking for from you, I guess. I, 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 that the first time I heard of that the background that I seen, to be honest, and if that's yeah. what occurred, and it sounds a bit yeah. queasy, to be honest. But I think in it, the film, do, it I think, does. I'd agree yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, 
you know, if, you know, if that one was, you know, so, you know, her reaction seemed very real to me. Um, and if she's not a professional actress, which I don't think she is, then I think there's, you know, there are questions should be asked about that scene, you know. I, I just don't, I, I think it was, I think it was unnecessary. You know, shaving heads has connotations with, with Nazism and, and all of that. Just, you know, I didn't think it was necessary to include that in the film because we already knew that these guys are all misogynistic souls anyway. I think you know that after five minutes, if you're still watching yeah, well, it, that's it. Yeah, exactly. five no, minutes later, see, I suppose. Yeah, you have sugars and you've got a topless band walking through the office at the time or whatever, you know, it's just go. I just think that scene was gratuitous and... I think I, I think it goes hand in hand with the scene where they're, they're describing the prostitutes and the, the, the levels. Like the blue the, chip the and the pink slip ones, the, 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 and, yeah. And, yeah. and how they viewed the world through that lens. Like, well, it's worth noting in woman that context. To them, like, she's just somebody that you can throw money at to do something with. She's a piece of meat. She's yeah. A, yeah, she's a, a commodity that you can pay mm. to do X, like everything. They see the whole world that way. Which is, is quite interesting in the context of what, what Aoife mentioned in terms of people who are victims of Belford who committed suicide, because that sequence, and again, this is the thing there's a really, really good article at, and I'm trying to remember what the name of the site is, uh, but it's from um, Fran Hoffner. And she wrote about basically her, react, her reaction in disgust in watching Wolf of Wall Street. And she said that what she finds particularly unsettling or disgusting about Wolf of Wall Street, and again, this is this is to the credit of uh, Schumacher as an editor, is the juxtapositions, the way in which the movie jumps from one scene to the next. So it jumps from like an orgy to them just playing golf, as if it's a matter of course. It cuts from that sequence of your woman having her heads kind of scalped and the nightmare party going on to it just being business at usual kind of the following day. And how that's like part of what makes it so unsettling is the fact that this is all happening hand in hand and there's no real focus. But Aoife mentioned the suicide and the fact that some of the victims of Belford had committed suicide. It's notable that you go from that sequence where they're talking about sex in the office and they're oh, talking. The guy. Yeah, yeah they talk about sex in the office. They talk about the secretary having sex with them in the office. They talk about her getting married and they talk about her husband ha committing suicide three years later. And then Belford literally goes, anyway, we were making money hand over fist. Yeah. And it's very much like, oh, I thought of that unpleasant thing for a second and now I'm going to change topic. It happens as well later on when he's talking about the character played by John Bernthal as well, where he's like, oh, he died at the age of 33 like Mozart. Don't know why I thought about that. But we were making money hand over fist. And I kind of, I think that enough of it creeps in around the edges, um, that it makes it deliberately uncomfortable and uncanny. Um, and I think that's perhaps more unsettling than kind of maybe moralizing over it. But yeah, no, I, I just, I think that is kind of like, I think that's effective, that kind of uncanny juxtaposition of those two things where it becomes even wronger for the fact that it's there, but not dealt Belfort's with. a coward though. Yes, like he, And this is, I think this is like, he has no moral character. Luke alluded to earlier. He, he's no moral, he's no center of any, of any moral sense of, other than himself. And anything that threatens to spoil that, even on the fringes of his viewpoint, is immediately banished. And all you're being told is what he sees. There's no victims in his world except him. Yeah. Um, and and even, 
even so much of himself is taken from other people as well because he yes. takes like it's that sequence where he has breakfast or lunch with Hannah the character played by McConaughey and he takes on everything that McConaughey says the beating of his chest for example he does that repeatedly throughout as well he mirrors kind of certain language he'll reference particular things there will be echoes of scenes earlier on later on in the movie as well where it's very much the case that Belford is and I think Luke mentioned it when we asked what the film's about the emptiness of him where he's just he's just this idea of like taking everything from the world around him and kind of folding it into himself and finding a way to make it craven and grosser and like yes. somehow even like he's he's a sleazier version of Hannah the guy who talks about cocaine hookers and masturbation and is only worth one million dollars a year except somehow Belford manages to like refine that down to an art and multiply it by 49 times um it's funny how matthew mcconaughey can talk about like um like <laughs> hookers drugs and masturbation and and make it like seem kind of cool and but that's you know? i think that's only because it's been there for five five minutes yeah yeah you'd kind of be disgusted by it but but yeah i don't they, like there there's I feel like there there's some small sort of overtures to his humanity and almost kind of sympathy for him that you would expect kind of like in most movies, like where if you have somebody terrible like this to sort of humanize him and get the, the audience to sympathize with him might kind of might add to the, the strength in the movie, but I feel like in, 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 in this movie kind of takes it away gives him a pass like like when when he's um when he's cheating on his wife there's a kind of like he he's thinking like what do i have to do to to kind of have sex with this woman or what 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 do i have to do to 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 get into her apartment then like just before he's um she opens the door he's like whoa what am i doing i shouldn't be here as if like he has a moral um, fiber in 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 but it but it's body. a duplicitous duplicitous yes that, voiceover that's, that's the thing not, is that like it's him excusing it's, everything like yeah. everything yeah, everything terrible that happens for it, like. everything terrible that happens is somebody else's fault in the narrative yeah, so like you have we're supposed to be kind of you're you're supposed to sort of like from from the perspective of the kind of I guess the male gaze you're supposed to be like well. Well, now I can't not cheat on my wife. Well, he's counting. Like, it's more if, than he's if counting. If you could on... see what I'm, what, what, what I'm seeing, you see, I have no choice. Kind of, you he's know? Well, I mean, Wolf of Wall Street, in fairness, like he's, well, it, you know, it's, it's the logic of, like, it's, it's, it's the masses of the universe. Well, it's the it's the logic that he's making, which is like, you know, well, I had no choice but to do what I was doing because any sane person in that situation would have done the same, which, you know, is a way of making you uncomfortable and complicit, which is, you know, it's a way of if you buy into it of morally excusing, well, first of all, yourself, but obviously of excusing him. It's like, oh, well, obviously, like Marvel Robbie's there and naked. What man wouldn't? And you're like well, any decent human being who loved his wife wouldn't in that situation. You know, or it's like, hey, I was taking money from rich no, but people Darren, and they wouldn't but, miss... But Darren, it was Margot Robbie. Yeah, th- thank you, Jordan. Um, I don't think you understand. Yeah. The situation here. But it's like, yeah, it's like I was taking money from rich people. It was better in my pocket than in theirs. And it's like, that's just a rationalization for what... like. I really adore that you get these sequences that happen repeatedly where, like, his wife says... 
don't you feel bad about taking money from poor people? And he's like, honey, honey, rich people don't buy terrible crap. And then he says, because they're smart. And then he realizes he has an epiphany that, you know, in his own mind almost seems moral. It's like, well, what if I start stealing from rich people instead of poor people? Well, that would be more moral because I wouldn't be stealing from poor people anymore. But it's, again, you're smart enough to see that the rationalization there is also, if I steal from rich people, I will steal more money. And, you know, it's sick as well, because, like, there is this kind of idea of, like, well, you're only ripping ripping off kind of um, rich people. The big fish, or the big whales, like, if you like, in in finance are often uh, pension funds yeah. rather than rich individuals. Yeah. Where it's pension funds that are, the, say, like trustees representing hundreds or thousands of regular working people. Yeah. Like, but the, the way the movie kind of portrays um, his kind of uh, Robin Hood's uh, turn. It doesn't, is, it's not a Robin Hood turn, it's just a way of getting more money. Yeah, but it's his narrative of the Robin Hood turn, it's I think. His, is it's how he of, uses yeah, it yeah, to make himself it's the way, yeah. It's the way it kind of comes about with his wife saying, like, oh, why are you ripping off these poor people? But I think the movie like, counts yeah. on you being smart enough to see that that's nonsense. Like, I don't know. think Scorsese cares. And it's, like, and it's, pla- it's blatantly nonsense. I think that's... And in some ways it doesn't matter if he cares or not, because it's still being portrayed in that way in film terms, like. Yeah, because he because he jumps from he jumps from his wife's very legitimate moral complaint of why you're ripping off poor people to, well, imagine if I trained these bozos. What if they didn't sound like a bunch of jerk offs? What if I could teach them to sell to people with money, real money? And the idea is that he's not actually interested in the fact that they have money. It's that he can have more money. I think I I don't know. I I think the movie's clear on that point. It's a, it's an underdog story as well. Like it's 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 it, it's celebrating. It's it's very much um, the good and the bad of um, of of America. Kind of like these 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 people who aren't like particularly clever and don't come from um, particularly rich backgrounds um, who have. Uh, become these um, these kind of heroes of 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 high finance or ma- making a way like bandits, you know. And um, I kind of like that the movie doesn't like the movie doesn't give you too much of Jordan's middle class background or his poor background or like his family life beforehand. He just arrives on Wall Street on a bus, and it's like in a this, bus, though. Yeah, That's no, no, the but kind it, of he, significant he, thing. Yeah, but it, it it's very and he says like as you know. In Henry Hill in, in Goodfellas says, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Jordan is much more explicit. Jordan Belfort's much more explicit. I always wanted to be rich. Like, I, I mm. do think that the movie cuts out a lot of the that's middle of that. The, and, the ultimate yeah. thing you can be in America is rich. It's rich, the ultimate, yeah. The only status that's worth attaining is money. Yeah. And it's it's how it's how America chose to be as well. Yeah, well it's Especially... Especially since, like, the kind of end of the 70s, start of the 80s, with the, the kind of rise of consumer culture from both, from both sides of the kind of political spectrum as well. Like, the, 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 the people associated a lot with Reagan 
but yes. with the but the, the a lot of the um kind of deregulation and um consumerism came as well from people like Ross Perot and um even like Ted Kennedy um a lot of that was 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 a reaction to some of their the republicans kind of political rivals um so the, the, i'm still happy to play so, <laughs> oh yeah yeah no and 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 you're right too because he was the, the, the person in in charge did the, the the there there is kind of um there is a certain kind of an, an it feels like there was a certain sort of inevitability we have about us although i obviously blame um would want to blame Regan as well. I, I think there's two two scenes in this movie that really um that really make me kind of I think they're the key scenes in it. One is very small and one's a little bigger in scene terms. The first one is when he's kind of de- delivering an address to Cabra coming out of South at the start is when he throws the glass of orange juice on the ground. Yeah, which really appalled me in a lot worse ways than something <laughs> that a lot of the food It's it well technically yes, but also to just the the absolute disgust of it. Like there's something really disgusting visually looking at that scene it because it says so much about character of a person. And uh, without even looking, just the a cool fan. Drop yeah. It. Yeah. yeah. And then the other scene is when he's he's he start just started his own company and he's making the phone call to sell to the guy who's waiting oh, for and he's oh, yeah. the gestures, yeah. But it's it's the gestures. It's uh, like to me the that's pantomime. the key scene yeah. of the whole film. They're all laughing at the poor schmuck at the end of the line because that's what they do, because they don't give a <laughs> and, you know, but themselves. And they're all making gestures, yeah, man's like, Oh, about eight thousand, about ten thousand. And they're putting their fingers up to the phone and everything whilst your man's still giving them their money. To me that's kind of remarkable to put into a film like this. It's it's terrifying and it's brutal and it's absolutely black heart of a country that worships this above all else. But to have it on screen and, and put it and say this is how it is is I think it's kind of remarkable and horrible and, it's and a, horrifying. It's a kind of a movement as well, kind of like, because I I guess people have an idea these days that kind of there's something inherently kind of evil or corrupt about finance which isn't which, really true there's there, there, there's, there's a kind of, of like course it's true, no 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 what what it what, what i what i mean is that there 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 are shifts in in like the for example like he is not I love okay. that and- Andrew's like Andrew's like Belford going to lunch with Hannah. He's like, and looking at your client base, and if you can make money for your clients as well. Darren, and Jay, Jay is like, Jay's like, no, <laughs> no, no. It's 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 a wonderful life. Is also about a banker. Yes. So, um, oh no, we talked about this. We talked about this at length. Yeah, they should call him George Bailey. Out. Am I right? Stop it. But it, okay. But it's about it. What 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 I mean is is that there has been so many kind of trends um, towards greed, like the move away from relationship uh, banking and relationship kind of brokerage to transactional banking, and the 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 idea of screwing your clients basically, like the, the rather which is quite graphically illustrated in that sequence. exactly yeah yeah which which would and 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 that that's something that the um that these kind of industries have been um uh, infected with a kind of the, the way of doing things which has become just 
the way we think that these industries have to operate, which is not kind of the, the, where 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 um, like they're 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 new paradigms in some ways. You know what I mean? Well, I do find interesting. I think this maybe gets at what you're saying. Well, not gets at, but to kind of plays into that is the movie's weird, not weird emphasis, but it's emphasis on the idea of this wealth that drives all this greed, this money being illusory, uh, where you have like the sequence with Hannah, the Matthew Mahoney character, when he talks about how we don't create stuff, we don't build anything. And how the idea is that right. you, know, you create money for your client, but that money is just on paper. It doesn't actually exist and materialize because you convince them yeah. to reinvest and your Ferris wheels open and it just keeps going round. And and it gets at the thing that, that you that mentioned. Does, yeah, that, that does come from what I was saying about the kind of move from the kind of 50s, 60s, kind of early 70s kind of producer economy that... that um, yeah. Where they, they were kind of dying from inflation. Everything was so expensive. They wanted everything to be cheap. So the, the, what they wanted was a country of consumers who, who would be able to have anything they 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 wanted without without ever producing anything. Yeah. Like the likes of Jordan Belfort, they're they're just kind of moving money around, moving money around, and it's just kind of. Uh, on paper there's no actual kind of value or um being being created which i think kind of gets at at this thing that you're talking about because we mentioned earlier that like the wonderful sequences where belford will begin to expose it to the camera about like what an ipo is and about how he specifically moved money around during the sale through his rat holes when the price hit the high teens you know what who gives a crap as always the point is this we made 22 million dollars in three hours that sort of stuff um, and you know what I'm saying? You're not really following what I'm saying, right? That's okay. It doesn't matter. Like, I think that like that stuff fits in that sense in that it demonstrates how completely nonsense all of this is, how little of it makes sense, how much of it is designed, just as you point out, to move money around and create the impression of value um, so that it can, again, consumer-driven economy. So there's... I, I, I think... I think though it creates a distance between between the audience and this sort of um world it kind of adds to the mystique. I think a lot of the strength of some movies that operate in this world are to demystify um some of it you know what i mean yeah, i i think it's I think it's significant that that Jordan Belford says, "Oh, you don't really care about this stuff, you know sure all the money and all that stuff is." That's his call, you know, and like Belford has a vested interest in, you not, caring. in it. And not only not not only you not caring, but in presenting it to you as something that you don't need to care about or shouldn't care about. Right. Um, that is like a very and like I think because he's such a like piggish, ignorant person, I think that to him makes perfect sense. That a person shouldn't want to know about these, these kind of things, but it also just happens to benefit him as well. This is kind of like anti-intellectualist like idea, you know, that oh you know, you, you don't really care about this. But people kind of like they take the comedy of that moment and and they do kind of take some truth out of it in doing that without I think even even realizing it. And I think it, it has bled into kind of other movies about like 
um this kind of financial like the big short sort of thing is it perhaps? like yeah and like the laundromat and stuff like this 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 kind of flippancy. and i know how much you love the laundromat <laughs> well, well, that's a dreadful film but but this kind of this kind of flippancy taken as red when, when it comes to this stuff that i you know it's not really worth talking about or it's too complicated for you to understand or, or things like this um it, it's kind of worth considering because of course, going to say that if you actually know what he's doing, you get even all you get angry, even all the more angry at him. You know. Yeah, ironically, I mean that's the opposite of Casino in some ways because you know there's the marvelous sequences of Casino where we find out how the gangsters are making their money, like where we follow you know the cashiers and into the into the security room and all that sort of thing, and we see how the casino is making money and how they're laundering their money, but here it doesn't give us any details at all and. You know, the, the sort of the nerd in me would be fascinated by how these guys made their money. Um, yeah, I, uh, like I, money I used to work. No, but oh, we do. Yeah, but well, <laughs> yes, it. we do. We don't. I mean, yeah, the, the film doesn't tell us though. You know what I mean? I mean, like I, I used to work for an investment bank back in the day. Um, <laughs> on the on the IT side, okay, on the IT oh, side. Fair, fair. But you know, this is this is one of, one of the big banks. Did they have a building in Canary Wharf? And I was over in London for a couple of weeks, just um, doing some training in in that building. And uh, you know, I've I've been on a stock floor and I've seen what these people are like. And they've Ferraris in the garage, and you know, this, and this was after the financial crash. You know, this is. Yeah. Uh, if I had stories like that, I would tell. I cannot legally tell them because I would probably be fired from my job. But I will say that Aoife is probably quite on the money, which may or may not actually physically exist because it's a Fugazi, it's a Fugazi, it's a what's it's a Fugazi. <laughs> but yeah, I do think Aoife, Aoife's point there is, is entirely valid. Yeah, and, and, and I, I, think, I think Luke and Aoife are right in so far as it kind of pertains to this movie. Because they, they, when you contrast... Like obviously, the Big Short was made after, and it's probably a very pointed um, uh, reference. When they cast movie. Margot Robbie, in the, in, in. yeah, exactly. In the, the different ways that they that that Margot Robbie <laughs> is, is used, used in the two films. In this movie, it's kind of like, don't think about that. Let's look look at Margot Robbie naked. Whereas in this movie, it's like here's whereas in the Big Short, it's Here's Margot Robbie in a bathtub. Like now that you're paying attention, she's going to she's not distracting you from what's important. She's going to explain to you what's what, what's important. This, this might say more about me than the rest of you, but I found the big short dullish shite. So, that's all. I, I'd watch the Wolf Wall Street on a loop before I watch Big Short again. So, I, I will come back. I, I, I'll I'll take up that point because uh, <laughs> I think one of the one of the really interesting uh aspects of, of this movie's legacy is because it employs a very 90s early 2000 frat boyish sense of humor yeah. to great effect it had the unintended consequence of a lot of frat boyish comedic directors oh. watching it and thinking yes. that they were Mark <laughs> yes so what you're Don't saying is this leads to vice. Is this, this leads because, to vice yeah. and bombshell um... this leads to, yeah adam mckay jay roach yeah. um Todd, uh, Todd, Phillips. Todd Phillips. We're going with Todd Phillips. Yeah, you should, they, all they, you should all stop. All watched me. this film and were like, "I am Martin Scorsese." <laughs> to be honest, I think Todd Phillips. I, I will point out different that Martin Scorsese films. 
right but it's 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 not him thinking i can do that it's him thinking i am him <laughs> so, that makes sense because that's who i am it's the not thing, like scorsese I, I, doesn't doesn't look at other uh filmmakers and think like i'm, oh, I'm, I'm going to litter my movie with <laughs> like he, he, but, he's but, not he's not he's not some visionary director who's who emerged from who's nowhere sort of come out of yeah he arrived yeah. in hollywood on a bus with his wife kissing him goodbye holding a cup of <laughs> yeah, coffee yeah <laughs> like, like certainly like it's he, it's okay he's for a director to have to his, his. He is, but you should yeah. be able to make something your own, and I don't think I, those guys do. Yeah, and I, I would just say like McKay's films, uh, for just to, to zero in on them. Uh, <laughs> Please do, because they need a kicking. Uh, to make an to example, out when, of when Luke still, says zero um, in, it's like I'm watching one of those drone strike videos. Um, <laughs> it's like we are zeroing in. <laughs> we have the target. Um, I take a bit, but. <laughs> If you if you take um like Dick the the Dick Cheney movie that he did Vice um, Vice Vice yeah yeah the, for all the critiques of of this film and for all the for all the validity in them and and there is a lot Adam McKay's films are what this film looks like if you have characters turn to the camera every two seconds ago and actually all of this was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Like st- you, those are demonstrable examples of of, of how the, this narrative is the is, is the worst for doing that. I like Vice. Darren, yeah. On the show, on the show notes, you should put the deleted scene from Vice. Oh, <laughs> please do, because it's worth seeing for the just. I it's indescribable. But it 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 it, it does the, the contrast between those two kinds of films. It it does pose an interesting question because I think like. For all of the repugnance in this film, like Scorsese's perspective with this and with other stories is always that like you these characters are repugnant, but you give them enough rope to to hang themselves with. And that's always why he, you know, he uses so much voiceover and and and, and like dramatic irony and stuff like that. Um and it's one of the things that I think is it makes this film more interesting to 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 watch now because over the last ten years yes. we have seen that heavy-handed kind of well well, well, no but giving someone enough rope to hang themselves with is reliant on them then hanging themselves (laughs) reliable on them not having enough rope that they're fearing that they should hang themselves yeah or not giving themselves enough rope that their feet touch the ground and belford and a lot of the people that are in power now are, are are all in the position that they are because they get around that and and because they are reliant to a great extent on you doing that yeah and then just and then just not doing it. Yeah, but they're they're also reliant on movies like this. Yeah, absolutely. I obviously, mean, obviously, the Big Short isn't about Jordan Belfort, but I don't see anybody coming away from it thinking I'm going to be like Jordan Belfort. No, you know, right. the, they do come away from thinking that some people shouldn't make movies. <laughs> like I mean, the characters in this watch Wall Street, and you can imagine yes. how much of uh, well, like Jordan uh, Belford himself has cited Wall Street. Wall Street as an inspiration on it. He cited it as a like, to go into Of course, to them it would be because there's no interiority to them, and there's no reflection to their lives at all. And like I mean, there was a really great article the weekend that the movie was released from Business Insider, which largely consisted of a reporter going to screenings near Wall Street over the weekend and keeping track of the audience reactions to the movie. And listeners, let me tell you, they were precisely as terrible as you would expect them to be. Of course. People were cheering when he was digging the cocaine out of the couch, for example. That sort of stuff. Of course they were. But like, 
I think as well, like this film is for obvious reasons compared to a lot of Scorsese's gangster movies, yeah. you know, Goodfellas uh, because like they're that, yeah. criminals and stuff. Um, and also because but, Terrence Winter, the writer, I think deliberately approached it from the perspective of emulating Goodfellas as well. And, and he wrote The Sopranos. Yeah. And, yes, and, yeah. and Boardwalk Empire, which Scorsese did yes. pilot up. Yeah. Um, but there are, they're, 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 they're parallel, but they don't, necessarily overlap i mean and like Eva's point about how casino and goodfellas and films like that go kind of into the nitty-gritty and the process and all that um is in part because those characters even though they're immoral they take a pride in that and and, and they have a real belief in that system and, and and in kind of their structure and how they do things and morally speaking even though again they're they're bad people but like from literally from mean streets onwards, Scorsese has been drawn to these people that have a level of, of kind of moral relativism or a level of moral understanding that he's interested in and and, and drawn to, even though it's not how maybe he sees things or how one should see things like the the characters in Goodfellas or, or, or in mean streets or any of these kinds of films, they, whether it's their Catholic guilt or whether it's their belief in the kind of mob lifestyle of, um, you know, um, just how the mob lifestyle is, if if they buy into that system and and kind of buy into becoming a made man or or kind of the the moral code that you live by, you don't snitch on people, stuff like that. Um, That at least gives them some sort of... Um, it, it it informs their behavior and, and it does give them contrasts because they can have guilt or they can have envy or they can have different things uh, that, that inform their decision making. Belfort and his cronies literally don't have any of that at all, which makes them a, a, a contrast to those kind of gangster stories. Because those people are critical, whereas these guys are just blank. They're, they're dark holes. <laughs> but two, two quick things to come back to there. First of all, Luke, thank you for acknowledging that Ace Rothstein is the best. I feel like he's underappreciated as a man who explains how systems work in unnecessary excruciating Stop detail. Stop trying to make Ace Rothstein a rock star, Darren. Second, <laughs> seen <laughs> happen. Um, second... Second observation I would make, and I, I this is, I think, what I what I mentioned there when I said that I actually kind of admire this more than Goodfellas, is that, like, in those Scorsese movies with those gangsters who convince you that they all have their systems of honour, they all inevitably betray one another, stab one another in the oh, back. Yeah. For all that, like, for all that Henry Hill talks about how ratting is terrible and how he believes in the mob and gangsters are great and they serve an important social function and they just allow guys who would otherwise not have anybody to turn to a place to go, he still rats on his friends the moment that it becomes convenient for him to do so. In the same way that, like, Frank Conroy, his best friend, plots to kill him the moment that he becomes mildly inconvenient to him. And I think think that like 
I think that that's the kind of romance that I was talking about that is present in Goodfellas, where like up until the point where that happens at the end, you can be like, yeah, these guys actually believe in what they're doing. They have a kind of a um, calling it a moral compass or more moral relativism is probably too much, but they have a kind of a structure that guides them and a framework that informs and shapes them. And therefore HR policy, if you will. Yeah, HR policy, yeah. But they have like they have like some a guiding principle in the darkness that they cling to, and that makes them characters that I can relate to and invest in. I actually find it refreshing how Wolf of Wall Street has absolutely none of that. How it doesn't offer you even the illusion of that. It strips away yeah. like from the outset, from the moment you meet Jordan, you know that he's going to be as pathetic as Henry Hill was at the end of Goodfellas, but for three hours straight without any, again, any of those moments where you can go, actually, he has a principle, or actually, he's kind of cool, or actually, I kind of like him, or think he's attractive. Throughout, he's he's pathetic, he's, he's basic, he's venile. Like, one of the, the things that I actually really find fascinating about this movie, and it kind of ties into what Andrew said, I think, about, like, sin. I think Andrew mentioned the idea of religion and a soul and stuff like that, or kind of, like, a morality to them. Um, Scorsese is a very Catholic filmmaker it's quite pointed that so much of the film emphasizes how animalistic the characters are how they are almost like less than human in the sense of like they lack a basic soul or the essence of personhood in the sense of like obviously they're compared to like the wolf of wall street the bull of wall street uh, throughout you have these kind of discussions where like his father mad max says what is this rumor of the jungle for christ's sakes there's the moment where like when they're smoking crack he's like we got to get out of here we got to run like fucking like lions, lions and, and tigers <laughs> Yeah, lions and tigers and bears. And it's like, and the fact that they call it kind of hunting season as well. And the fact that they just behave consistently like animals throughout. Like there's a sense in which kind of Scorsese as that religious filmmaker, that's the religious or moral judgment there. Is that these are people who do not have like even the basic essence of human decency to them. They I look don't... at that to that, Darren. Just like to, that's sin that that's that's yeah. like the very catholic perspective of what like what the soul is the soul elevates us from animals it makes us better than animals it makes us better than creatures of impulse and well, I, think I think that... you mentioned before darren that the the and we've discussed this over different podcasts over many years of um the hateful eight and um the dark knight rises being the kind of trumpian films if you will um, I think this is probably, for my mind, the ultimate Trump film in the sense of what happens when these people are left unchecked with no moral compass, no anything. Mm. And you look around and you say, this is what happens. They they are the future. Well, they are the present, certainly. <laughs> well, what, what, Aoife, what Aoife said, actually, which is it's, it's a different experience watching this now than it oh, was it is. even it's watching harder it. Because, you, because the people that yeah. got away with it are, are in power. In, in essence, they're running the running the show, and that's not going to change. Yeah, it's this is this isn't taking place on Wall Street. This is taking place in like sixteen hundred Pennsylvania. And like Jordan yeah. uses the you know the lion yeah. as like the symbol of Stratton Oakland. Yeah. yeah, I think the the scene with McConaughey. What is so significant about that is that like it is a sort of seduction, but like. Belford already shows up to that as a piece of shit. And he's very, he is at least yeah. up front about that. Like he says that um, he was a money crazed little <laughs> pre origin. Yeah. Yeah. But what you see in that scene, like what, what, he, what, what Belfort learns from McConaughey there is that um, 
nothing matters and that there's no need to even pretend, yeah, yeah. pretend yeah. human propriety like he he's very mannered and like oh the clients and and you know i'll just I'll have take a drink i'll just have water yeah and mcconaughey is so casually um beyond all that yeah. and and so so um confidently uh communicating how none of that is needed that's the big thing that that Belfort takes away from that, and then that's what he teaches to others. Like he's there teaching Spike Jones and everybody else. Spike Jones, one of the great characters. You're, <laughs> you're doing this like small time screwing people over thing, but you you know you're amateurs. <laughs> postman, mostly postman. <laughs> uh, maybe gonna buy Jay, their wives a ring, hoping yeah. to buy a boat. Jay is absolutely right that the, the the key scene is then him on the phone and and all these yahoos around him, um, and in terms of you know the the kind of moral reflection or the moral uh, takeaway that you want to take from this movie. I think that that again is a key scene because I think a lot of people are operating uh, maybe while they're watching it or maybe after they're watching it, that they're the guys around Leo, but you're not, yeah, you're the guy on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I think that's again, where you're kind of, if you already know that you're the one on the phone, <laughs> this movie can be, can be difficult to take. In, yes. In that that kind of goes back to the the, the kind of um, I don't want to harp on too much about it, but I almost feel like we, we ought to about 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 the uh, kind of Phillips' refusal to kind of show the, uh, the victims because uh, yeah, the, 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 like that we're not in the room with that person on the other side of the phone, even when even in the moments of domestic violence. Like when he when he punches his wife in the stomach, it's in the background like, of the shot. It's in the background, and he and the camera follows him, you know, and it's, it's like has has just floored her, you know. The, the the and the 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 kind of I don't know. Maybe maybe it makes it even more kind of brutal and. Um, it's casual. I think it's the only time you Shocking. see it when it's likely yeah. happened again and it's happened before that and probably happened. Well, yeah, that, that was one of, one of the reasons cited for 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 their divorce, like in, in the real yes. world. No, so the, the, it's not just kind of, you know, something put in a movie for some drama. Um, that is real domestic That was also the thing that Belford objected to uh, when he was taking his child to it. He wanted to take his child to see the movie, but he was like, "Yeah, I can't." Well, he shouldn't be allowed to take his child. To... <laughs> How did Turn he? Turning on a car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I, I think that there is kind of something interesting there, and that idea that you know we are the marks because you do have that kind of like that closing. The film is repeatedly selling like its idea, Belford, to you, particularly through like the advertising, particularly in the way that he presents himself to the audience. But even that closing shot, like the closing shot where he goes on stage and he starts talking, you know, sell me this pen and it's shot like an infomercial and then the screen widens to take up the full width of the screen and the cameras, like the parting shot isn't Belford. The parting shot is the audience sitting there eagerly consuming, like the narrative that Belford's constructing. And I think that's... Yeah, okay. New Zealand people... Who haven't discovered um, pens, apparently, who've never used a pen before, um, because it seems like an alien object. Sell me this pen. But I do find it interesting that you have that, 
Like that that kind of closing shot is not Belford. It's the audience eagerly consuming whatever Belford's selling. And it, it complicates the movie, I think, because like that's us watching the movie to a certain but extent. But that's, because... that's been cinema's yeah. great at that, of making yeah. an audience complicit, be it violence, be it uh, sexual assault, be it murder. Like if you're there to watch this in the dark, what does that say about you? Is it, yeah. Even just when you take it as cinematic terms, in terms of the consumer and the kind of, you know, there's a lot of poor people that want to get rich quick and they buy shares because they're being sold you get rich quick yeah and and it's an unregulated mess yeah and and, and the kind of uncomfortable aspect of, of kind of like the uncomfortable aspect of kind of complicity there which is like if you're responding to an ad in playboy saying get rich quick and pumping your money into that does that make you complicit in a system like that well, we all consume I mean, I mean, we all do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, people are buying Apple products that are made wherever in sweatshops like, and slavery. If you buy a bloody yeah. electric car, the lithium is carved out of the ground in Bolivia. Or like, it does nothing yeah. free of. Yeah. Like, there's very little moral decency in buying anything. Yeah, and like, if you I mean, buy from Amazon, complicit. yeah, yeah, yeah like we, we're all complicit. Like, nobody's without sin in this regard, and I think that's a fair point. Like, um, very quickly, actually, because I think this came up at the start of the podcast. Um, but Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, because I think Aoife mentioned, I think Luke mentioned, and I know Jay has mentioned in the past, this is possibly either DiCaprio's finest performance for you guys or his finest performance in a Scorsese film. Would you, both. is that? It's both, both for me. Okay. It's the best thing he's ever done. He could have, he could have learned how to play tennis. Yes. <laughs> like, uh, Belfort, for all his faults, is supposed to be pretty good at tennis. Well, you know how Belfort gets good at tennis. And again, I worry that we are glorifying the man on the <laughs> podcast. I think, like, let's be clear, Belfort is a terrible person. But he films himself playing tennis in the morning and then watches it as he falls asleep with his third wife at night um, in order to, like, learn the moves. Apparently, he's That's, obsessive. Isn't that just delightful? <laughs> yeah, not at all <laughs> vaguely. Like, it's so <laughs> revealing that he would watch himself <laughs> to learn how to get better well, like, at tennis. When his ghosts have been prison. Like, it's like him and whatever kind of extras or actors that they've got to play that tennis scene are each, like, failing to hit it above <laughs> the, the net. net. Apparently, like, that was that was Tommy Chong's thing. Tommy Chong found it really distracting that Jordan would, like, go out and play tennis every morning in the yard and then come back and, like, work on his memoir that he was going to sell for a million dollars. He uh, Didn't he rise us and then abandon it and destroy us as well yeah but that's again this um, so is all like a false stars. yeah yeah um, there was actually and- um there's a scene in the memoir well the, he wrote a scene for the memoir and he said it's probably the most disgusting thing he's ever written and random house said we can't put that in the oh this is the, the bachelor party yeah yes um yes apparently so um, obviously I'm not going to describe what the scene was here, but yeah, I, I, I can only imagine. I, I, I foolishly Googled it and he talked about it in a podcast with Logan Paul. Oh and God. Somehow, no. it, somehow it which, gets worse. Yeah, which, yeah. which, which says it all. Jesus Christ. Listeners can't see Luke wincing. Um, Frankly, he's out there still reveling in this story and he thinks it's hilarious, says an awful lot about this man. Yeah. So yeah. it's with Logan Paul. With Logan Paul. It's <laughs> with Logan it's Paul. horrific. Um 
But back, oi, to, oi, oi. back to the, the DiCaprio performance, because I think that last, a couple of weeks ago, I said that, like, for me, Shutter Island is the definitive Scorsese DiCaprio performance, because it does what DiCaprio does so well for me, which is this kind of fevered intensity, insecurity, and kind of the sense that everything's falling apart, but you're unwilling to acknowledge it is, and you need to be taken seriously as you're presenting yourself. I think The Wolf of Wall Street's interesting because it's a performance that I could not have imagined DiCaprio giving like yeah. five or ten years earlier. Like this is like up until Killers of the Flower Moon, which were released in a couple of years, this was the end of like DiCaprio's big run of collaborations with Scorsese. And this feels to me like the cherry on top. It feels like we're getting a performance that he certainly could not have given at the start of the run over a decade earlier. But it feels like maybe through his collaboration with Scorsese, he's grown more confident and more comfortable with himself. It's quite like his work in, say, Django Unchained the previous Christmas in that it is, it's incredibly a confident, secure, like, comfort. Like, it's a, it's a performance that requires a degree of security with oneself that I don't yes. think DiCaprio would have been capable, or I couldn't see DiCaprio being comfortable with a couple of years earlier. I'd agree. Well, I, I think a lot of actors like playing horrible characters and a lot of a lot of a lot of actors as well love being method when they're when they're being horrible as well like like kind of you know the actors aren't attracted to like i can't think of tom hanks kind of be be being attracted to playing mr rogers and it's like um like <laughs> so there, i have to get method yeah yeah, yeah. There isn't like a horrible kind of person who is an actor who's like, I'm going to play a really lovely person and then I'm going to be really lovely all the time and really kind of, kind of enjoy that. Like Tom Hanks works for for Mr. Rogers because it He's seems just like a good most guy. actors want to just be a <laughs> on the screen. You know? <laughs> yeah. Because they get to be a um, anyway. Um, we, we should yeah, talk about the, 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 the delayed nude, uh, nude scene, really, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the I, sequence the, the, of the 21st century? Possibly, it, yeah. It, it is great. There, there's also some choking on cold cuts, oh, which, yes. which, which don't get eaten. <laughs> get off um, my phone! But with, 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 the, with the quality, with the, phone. With the quality phone. scenes, by the way, like, um, and we may be talking a little bit about Jonah Hill in a moment. Because Jonah Hill suffered for his art on this movie in a number of ways. First of all, he only got paid $60,000, which is the lowest amount that the Screen Actors Guild would allow him to get paid for this. Second of all... Yeah. That's what you get in a year working for the FBI. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I call that? (laughs) But but you don't get a gun when you sign up, unfortunately, (laughs) um, to Wolf of Wall Street. But also the fact that apparently uh, Jonah Hill... That sequence with the goldfish with Thomas Middleditch. Remarkable um, sequence. It's a remarkable yeah, sequence. When, when we said that we don't get to see their victims, we do get to see <laughs> Thomas Middleditch <laughs> getting a very hard time. Um, but like the sequence is that like apparently there were PETA people on set that wouldn't let Jonah Hill swallow the goldfish. So he would have to shoot the scene repeatedly where he would put the goldfish in his mouth. Had to do three takes of it. And apparently at one point the goldfish actually uh, went to the toilet. Um, which is oh, delightful. A fake goldfish. I mean, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> he got a digital goldfish de-aged it that cost 11 yeah, million quid. Oh, yeah. well, With that we, sweet we've seen movie. a lot of bad Scorsese. Yeah, rubber one. Yeah, let's, let's not do that. 
Uh, <laughs> Steve <laughs> Madden. Also, Steve. the the um, yeah the the, the, the the prosthetic dick. I love it. Yes. What what a what a what are the citizens of <laughs> doing now? <laughs> the emperor's way. Um, I just imagine DiCaprio little... following Jonah Hill around the set, being like, "I found some fun tokens." <laughs> just thrown dollar bills out. <laughs> Um, Jonah Hill apparently ended up in hospital during the filming of uh, Wolf of Wall Street uh, because he snorted so much fake cocaine, uh, which is apparently made of vitamin D. Apparently he said if he felt really good for like the first seven weeks. What? Isn't that vitamin E? Sorry. But I thought uh, apparently it's vitamin D. So apparently he felt Ah, great for the first like seven weeks, but then apparently spent six weeks in hospital towards the end of the shoot because he overdosed on fake uh, cocaine that they use shooting the movie, which is is fascinating. Um, and then also the the Spike Jones cameo that we mentioned, that came Remarkable. about. Remarkable. Well, that came about because apparently the casting director was Ellen Lewis and she had worked with uh, Jones on her and they'd done so much of the reading for her and Wolf of Wall Street together, um, reading against uh, different actors where Jones would read the other part. She's like, actually, you're not a terrible actor. Would you like to come in and have a part in this movie? Yes, he's pretty what, good. He was in um, the... Oh, Three Kings. Three Kings. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, and he's actually yeah. pretty good what's, in that. What's funny about that is that originally that cameo was done by Samantha Morton. <laughs> and then they brought Spike Jones in instead. <laughs> deep cut, deep cut. No, I'm, not, I'm, um, I don't, I'm, the, not, I'm not getting involved in that. The, um, the <laughs> chest pumping sequence with Matthew McConaughey. Apparently what would happen is McConaughey does that anyway between shots. That's how he psychs himself up when he's playing a role on screen. And apparently DiCaprio well, of noticed. Yeah, of course he does. That's a very Matthew McConaughey story. And apparently DiCaprio noticed and he was like, hey, how would you feel about doing that on camera and doing that as a bit in the scene? And it works remarkably well. It's arguably one of the movie's most iconic sequences. A side point should be worth making that uh, given McConaughey and Leto the Oscars that year is the worst thing Hollywood's ever done. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when when we talk about people who go, <laughs> like it's absolutely um, reprehensible. It's worse than anything morally in this film. <laughs> the, the, the. I'm surprised that Leo was the one who encouraged him, um, him to do it because I, I think I've spoken before about kind of Leo sometimes in scenes. We talked about it with The Departed, feeling uncomfortable with improvisation, feeling uncomfortable with kind of improvisation, and like kind of he looks like he's sort of like grinning. And maybe maybe he's enjoying what McConaughey is doing, but he's also kind of anxious and worried. What am I going to do? <laughs> um, you know, and, and he he just looks kind of giddy and grinning, but kind of uncomfortable in 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 the scene in a similar way to kind of like in the Departed with Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. Yeah, yeah. That's perfect for the scene. Yeah. You know, because at, yeah, at that point yeah. in the film, he's a very naive character. He's you know he. he you know he's in this new brave world that he's that he's entered, and you know he he's lucky he looks up to McConaughey, and yeah, so I I, would, I think it's perfect. Yeah, it definitely it yeah. definitely works, but like like it's it's kind of like him being awed by the what somebody is doing, and maybe not not being able to match it and worrying, kind of in that moment. I was about to say about DiCaprio, like I think for me the reason that this is, but both. His best performance was Scorsese, and I think one of his best performances in general. I think a lot of times, like actors, 
do their best work when they can see a lot of themselves in the character that no genuinely if they see if they see something in the character that they can empathize with and i think one of the things about this film is that for all that you can argue that it, it is condemnatory of belfort or at the very least not um, openly supportive of not supportive of them i think dicaprio was definitely taken in by yes. Belfort and kind of yeah if you read the, the by, so, i mean is, is to, to, I think DiCaprio is the one that optioned his, his memoir in the first place. Yes, he did. He got into a bidding war with Brad Pitt. He also learned how to crawl on the ground when affected by quaaludes from um, Jordan Belford. Fun yeah, fact, and like spent a lot of time hanging around with Belford and like even after yeah, the film. Hanging out with his family as well and his father. And stuff like that. So. Um, <laughs> he was made and an honorary but, emperor. Um, <laughs> but, but genuinely, like I, I think DiCaprio is like a, a, a good actor and stuff like that. But I don't always uh, go in for his kind of intense um, performances or, or stuff like that. I think that there's something a little bit more liberating and a little bit more. Yeah, it's a lighter performance. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, but but a I think that he's performance. able to do that uh, so yeah. confidently and so. Uh, you know, as you say, he wouldn't have maybe been able to do this a few years before, but it's because there's a lot of DiCaprio in this character anyway. Like DiCaprio isn't a super intense guy to me. DiCaprio is the like pussy patrol kind of dip, <laughs> you know, um, that dates twenty three year olds and then gets rid of them. And and fun fact here, by the way, um, Olivia Wilde was told that she was not cast in the movie in the role played by Margot Robbie because she was too old to play Leonardo DiCaprio's girlfriend despite being seven years younger than him. Like, I... Delightful. And I think, I think even DiCaprio isn't aware of how good a performance or how certainly how revealing a performance he gives in this film. Um, because all that, like, pussy patrol stuff that, you know, like, that maps on to Belfort so well. Oh, sure. and, certainly to the misogyny that 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 Aoife was talking about earlier and like even with Belfort being the narrator uh, and even with him being in control of the narrative uh it gives away so much repugnant stuff and and, and stuff to Aoife's point that you know it isn't necessarily enough to say that it's his perspective or that you know you're not supposed to go along with it like even if he's just like walking along a golf course um he'll just like go and grope a woman like there's the casualness to that misogyny that um dicaprio i don't think is capable of 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 kind of seeing the the kind of negativity in because i think it's it's too too i mean to extent i'm sure he he can but i i don't think he sees even the extent to to how much of himself is in that i think the only scene in the movie that he was uncomfortable or stated that he would be uncomfortable shooting was the sequence after the bachelor party in las vegas the sequence where his bare arse is on screen as he walks towards the window completely naked it's it's not great again like he he could have he could have he 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 could have worked out a bit <laughs> I love this. We're now now onto the famous 250 trope of discussing the evolving portrayal of male anatomy in cinema. Um, it's no Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner 2049. Um, if you're going to show all these beautiful naked women, like you should make sure when you're showing uh, Leonardo DiCaprio that it's not like utterly disappointing. 
<laughs> like that is not a scene where you know what leo if you're ashamed of doing that scene maybe you should have prepared for it um, wow. um, i do think that there is something again in the fact that all the men are particularly repugnant in it and the fact that you know that is like you are not just looking at the beautiful women through the male gaze you're looking at these really you know, ugly, non-idealized male forms. And again, like, obviously, the argument is that, like, idealized male forms are for the female gaze. That's not necessarily true in that, like, the male gaze involves positioning yourself in the gaze as well. It's like seeing that fantasy of yourself as the kind of V-shaped Ryan Gosling slash Henry Cavill slash Chris Hemsworth type model. And seeing right. all these Cause, chubby... Because, like, John Barenthal's character, even, like, he, he's in the kind of um he's like calling his his, his, Mas, his mom mom is chicken are we having chicken or what john ferenthal is the low-key mvp here like he does a yes. lot with uh, a squirrel and he, he basically propped up the walking dead for years on and then he died and the whole <laughs> show fell to pieces because everybody else was terrible at it. um but i mean even like in further kind of uh examining the the way that the film treats women like it is a consistent part of the male gaze that like well male nudity is funny and therefore you know easily kind of dismissed and then female nudity when you do see it on film is more of a tantalizing kind of a thing right and, and even in terms of the morality of the film like uh, yeah all the guys in it are, are repugnant and are kind of yeah, immoral and stuff. except for jean de jardin he's <laughs> like the, the, the one the one the one that she runs away to yeah the, the, like I, you know again we talked about like the male gaze the male fantasy and stuff like that i adore the sequence where he's cheating with john barenthal's character's wife and they hop into bed together and it's like something from a looney tunes cartoon underneath the sheet yeah. it's a 1960s sex farce yeah that's it exactly where, where yeah. like if it was a cartoon you would imagine it would be a cloud yeah. and there would be elbows and, and kind of feet well, popping out he throws him. a lit cigarette away you know, <laughs> which is a bizarre moment like, because he's fr- he's European. Because like, he's European, yeah. Uh, any any European over the age of twelve is allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just I, I'm I'm kind of interested to see what everyone thinks about like Margot Robbie's performance in the film and her character in the film because like Naomi is kind of shown to be not much better, more moralistically speaking, than 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 Jordan and the kind of they're always bickering. The thing that they get along about is because. Like Jordan says at one point, like, we actually had stuff in common and it's like their love of like drugs. And yeah, we, we shared dot, 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 some of the same interests and stuff. But um, but I think that the film does kind of leave her by the wayside, um, narratively speaking, um, in, in, in ways that I think take away from the film overall. And like you mentioned, you know, the, the, the violence to her, which is really shocking um, yeah. in ways that you're kind of primed for that kind of violence in Scorsese films, and yet it still manages to to kind of shock you in in this one. Um, but you kind of don't really, as 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 as, as you've said, it, it's in the background, and it it kind of is the end of her. In the, in the even movie. that even that final sex scene that uh that's a deeply yeah, which uncomfortable is, sex scene. Yeah, which that is like her. A, basically, it's her kind of last word. Yes. and yet it's her. It's still her being used as a yes, sexual it's object. But and like the film, the absolutely. <laughs> yeah. but, but the way that the film ex- almost exclusively uses her as a sexual oh, object, yeah. where I know you guys have mentioned previously, like Goodfellas, that actually gives the, the Karen an the actual ball, character. Yeah, yeah, Karen 
it it gives her na- the narrative she's an agency. archetype yeah. of the gangster's wife, but it does give her a lot of agency and does give her a narrative that I think this film fails to give Naomi. I and I think Rob did like really, uh, uh, she gives a really good performance in this film. But one of the things that is striking to me is the way in which like this was like her big kind of star making thing because, and particularly at the kind of time that came out, it's like, oh my God, you know, she was the kind of the, the ish girl. But she's managed to reject just being that and just being kind of a... Um, well, she's able as a producer to get a movie like Birds of Prey made, which is remarkable in, in this universe. Yeah, uh, well, and, 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 and that's further to a film that also treats her as a, as, as a sexual object. Which so is Suicide Squad, to yeah. Of remove yourself from that completely. Yeah. But, but the fact that she was so striking in this film and, and, and managed to kind of carry on that kind of... Uh, as kind of an A-list star where a lot of these kind of films just go, yeah, that's the hot girl in that film. And then you're kind of done. And um, her kind of charisma and her kind yeah, of, yeah, um, she, she, she gets, she makes the most out of something. Yeah. Very, very, very much thin. in spite of the movie. Because, and, and the reason why it's so thin is because it's so beholden to Jordan Balfour. I mean, the movie does do interesting things about Balfour's perspective. And if you're being very charitable, you can kind of latch on to those. Like even stuff like when he's coming out of the country club and it's like four steps. Oh, and the stairs but change. No, it's yeah. like 10 or 15 steps. Like, and, and, yeah. and w- w- what are we seeing? Are we seeing kind of... How it what? was or how he remembers it. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Or how he to, wants to, us to see to, it. To kind of underline the subjectivity of it. But that's, it's kind of subtle, you know? The the the, th- the the things that are very obvious in this movie aren't are are are, are some of the things which like like the like we talked about how shocking the domestic violence was in it, but it's very much kind of like it's put in the the background, and then you have them coming into the foreground, and as Jay says, the people cheering as he's kind of getting the cocaine. Like they've already forgotten that he's he's just punched. Well, to be fair, that was an audience wife. on Wall Street. To be clear, yeah, yeah, no, but they, 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 that's, that's, sorry, I, 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 there, there, there's a lot of kind of you know, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, very quickly before we wrap up, then um, this is interesting because this arrives in a spate of three films late in Scorsese's career: Hugo, which we talked about last week. Silence, which we won't be talking about next week, uh, but basically where Scorsese had to get a lot of his primary funding from outside the studio system. I think when we were talking about Shutter Island, maybe even when we were talking about The Departed, Scorsese had already had his eye on this project. What happened is DiCaprio bought the rights uh, back in 2007, paying something like $1 million for it, and he'd wanted to bring Scorsese on as director, but they couldn't get the money. Warner Brothers initially said, maybe we'll do it. Then the departed kind of happened and like they were like, okay, you don't seem like you're a team player. And then Paramount were like, maybe we'll pay for it. And it was like Shutter Island. It was like, okay, that was a tough experience. And over time, Scorsese basically had to hold out until Red Granite Films, the independent production company, came in and said, we will give you $100 million and final cut on the movie and you can make it however you want. And we won't ask for anything too egregious. We won't ask you to do it, like, to moralize. We won't ask you to cut your budget. We'll give you the figure that you want. And we think that there's a market for this. It's kind of interesting that, like, already at this stage, you can see that the studio system is kind of, like, contracting. It's retreating from making these sorts of movies. There's no way that kind of Scorsese could make a movie like even The Departed or Shutter Island, which he made seven years earlier. 
he has to go, you know, internationally. He has to go sort of to, uh, has to go to smaller studios to get the money to do that. And then obviously, like later on, he'll have to go to streaming services to make the movies that he does as well. So it's interesting that you have this sort of sea change happening, kind of. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I like to do in watching films is um, just count how many logos are on before the film starts. You know, it's it's quite fascinating to see. Um, yeah. You know, it used to be, you know, old films like it was me, or it's a Paramount film or it's a 20th Century Fox. And now it's, you know, you get five, six, seven different production logos before a film even starts these days. So, and that's just the way things are going, whether whether we like it or not. You know, the studio system is is dying, if not already dead. Um, and, it's, you know, it's it seems to be streaming services who are willing to put up the big bucks to make to make these sort of films you know um, for the moment anyway for the moment um, and yeah. we have mank coming out soon for netflix i think and um you know all these big films that should be shown in the cinema that, that we would you know, that we need to see in cinemas are just being thrown directly onto streaming services but possibly a limited cinema, cinema run beforehand if that you know yeah, i think it's sad i think it's sad it's a good thing though that you have these um these sovereign wealth funds of countries like, you know, right? that can that can allow these movies to get made, like by embezzling public funds. Heroes. I love that, Leah. Yeah. When, when you were doing this in the '90s, when you were embezzling money in the '90s, you had to do it through like U Bowl, for example. Like, I love that we've reached the point where things are so desperate that it's like get Martin Scorsese to make the movie that we're embezzling this money through. But yeah, no, I, right. like, I I find it kind of fascinating that Scorsese, like through this season that we've done as we're coming to the end of it, going from, you know, 1976 with Taxi Driver through to 2013, you have Scorsese and, and arguably then up to the Irishman in 2019, you have Scorsese like living through a tumultuous time in kind of Hollywood history. And it's fascinating that like this highest grossing Martin Scorsese movie literally couldn't have been made through the studio system. I find that fascinating. Because uh, it's like no, sorry, and and that it didn't give birth to kind of that it didn't create like a a, a sort of Scorsese sense <laughs> where 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 the studios were like, oh yeah, we can bank on this guy. Again. Yeah. Well, what yeah. happened is Paramount was the only studio that wanted to do that, and then Paramount had a spectacularly terrible number of years. And it was like, okay, we cannot afford to do that anymore, basically. Yeah, and now all these studios just get Adam McKay to do it. <laughs> and he probably works cheaper as well. He's cheaper, uh, yeah. And, and, yeah and, now, and now McKay is working with Netflix to just to just elbow Scorsese out even further. And with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, and, and oh, Robert De Niro. That's one of the things that the Sony hack exposed was that like there 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 are people who are very expensive who are now kind of like I guess pushed to streaming like Adam yeah. Sandler as well, and then there are people who um, like I guess McKay and Judd Apatow who 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 are actually kind of like making movies relatively cheaper. That nobody um, wants to watch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very, very quickly, actually, because I think Jay will appreciate this little fun fact. What? But basically, you know, when Scorsese was in his ah, feck it, I'm not sure if I want to continue directing any more phase, which was, I think, roughly between the end of The Departed and winning the Oscar for The Departed, but probably more accurately between the end of the shooting of The Departed and the final release of uh, Shutter Island. Apparently, this would have been directed by another director, a director of whom I know you have strong feelings, Ridley Scott. 
Ridley Scott almost directed The Wolf of Wall Street with but Leonardo DiCaprio. But in two ways, you might have been a fit. Like, he, he can do excess on screen. I think we can all agree on that. Um, <laughs> I actually would, I'd love to see Tony Scott's Wolf of Wall Street. That, that would have been a film. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think the, the, Tony, Tony the, Scott. The beloved Wolf superior Scott, Tony Scott. In the sort of Jerry uh, Bruckheimer yeah. school. Yeah. Yeah. Ridley yes. got his... <laughs> A few years later, when he made all the money in the world. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sucked the life out of a film. My God, that's bad. Um, He's a stockbroker. Pretty good. Well, thankfully, there were there are no moral questions about the making of that film. No, luckily, none whatsoever. Luckily, no. Like, and say what you will about about Scott. I love that he was able. Thank you. I will. I love that he was able to fix that problem with just two weeks of kind of like. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Well, again, uh, thankfully that film doesn't uh, lionize any... Uh, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he potentially uh, problematic. the financial industry. Yes. Um, all right, then. So we're about wrapping up, I think. Is there anything more you want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed with regards to The Wolf of Wall Street? In terms of food waste, I will say that I appreciate the character of Chester Ming, who not only ensures that he leaves no food waste, making sure that he eats his burger during the sales pitch, but also is quite happy to ensure that nobody else at the table does either. Are you ha- are you finished with that donut? Can I have that Danish? Can we, uh, uh, can we, <laughs> can we get a shout out for the, the name of the guys? Nikki Koskoff, Chester Ming, and Robbie Feinstein. They're just, they're just such great names. <laughs> Uh, I love them. They just thought when you say Chester Ming, it just makes you smile straight away. It's just and, a great name. And the hairstyle as well. Like his, his Elvis hairstyle. And like, yeah, and like it's like so like so much of the movie feels vaguely cartoonish, which kind of works. Because it's also shout out to speaking of cartoon, shout out to uh, Shea Wickham as Captain Ted. Yeah. Uh, just a just a bit of chop. It'll be just a little bit of chop, it'll be fine. And like one of the things I absolutely love about the movie is like how much of it's about power and where the power lies in a scene because it's not really about money it's not really about sex it's all about power and again you can see how the various characters have power when they shouldn't or when it appears like they shouldn't like that sex sequence with Margot Robbie at the end where it's like it's very clear she has the power there but like when he's landing the helicopter with the qualified yeah. helicopter pilot and the helicopter pilot's you're gonna kill us same time tomorrow yep yep good job or um or Shea Wiggins cat and t- Ted, who's like, yeah, um, the water's a bit choppy. We yeah. can handle chop, chop, right? Chop's yeah, we'll, all right. Yeah, yeah, we'll just tie everything down. <laughs> yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll just clear the decks. Uh, yeah. DiCaprio does a world-class fall into the swimming pool, by the way, as well. It should also be acknowledged. Oh, that trip uh, as well. That trip on it. it's, it's great. <laughs> yeah, and sets off uh, the alarm. I'll just acknowledge as well Joanna Lumley's performance. Yes. So, yes. Um, is he hitting is... on me? <laughs> I he think is hitting like on Julie me. Julie Andrews was who Scorsese originally wanted, well, but well, like, I can yeah. see it. That's well, <laughs> and and again, it's 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 great because you do have that scene where Belford is. In any other film, it would be the kind of the come to Jesus moment or the kind of revealing moment about the character's point of view, where he's talking about how much pressure is on him and how difficult it all is, <laughs> and how miserable he is. And it should be a reflective moment, but it doesn't last because he's just like, is she hitting on me? <laughs> how can I, how can I reapply, how can I rework the power character. dynamic here? Yeah, It's really weird that John Favreau I... turns up in character from Marvel films, though, right? He <laughs> That's happy walks in, and He literally comes in as the same character. It's like, what is this happening? Why is he here? <laughs> yeah. Like the character he played the same year in Iron Man 3, which is the guy wandering around saying that, yeah. He just, the... left, he just literally stepped off the set yeah. as the same character and stepped yeah. onto the world. Safety, safety, same, same, safety first. Oh. Safety first. This is not secure. <laughs> Wear your name badge. Um, it's yeah. literally Happy Hogan from Iron Man yeah, Three, which I kind of adore. Um, and like, imagine the DGA meetings. Like every other director's, like Martin, 
Did you lose my number? Like, you want to know what I think this is building to? Because Favreau was able to get Werner Herzog to appear in season one of The Mandalorian, I'm waiting for Scorsese to have a like major role in The Mandalorian season two. Even that just... will not get me to get to pay for uh, Disney+. <laughs> where he... Scorsese's just going to walk through the CGI Star Wars universe and say, this is cinema, this is cinema, this is cinema for 20 minutes while Favreau gives two giant middle fingers <laughs> towards like Marvel. It's like, yeah, fire me from the Avengers, yeah. will you? Um, he's going to be pointing the Mandalorian to like an apartment and saying, you see inside that apartment. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's in there. <laughs> you probably think I'm sick. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to say anything. Um, all right then. So yeah, I think this brings our season of Scorsese to the end. Uh, oh, no. but bef- before we do, just uh, I want to ask Aoife, if you've been binging Scorsese movies along with us, you are most frequently recurring guest. Any particular notes, anything coming out of this rewatch of Scorsese movies that you noticed this time around? Anything you'd like um, to celebrate or anything yeah, that kind of jumped just, out at you? Just, I think it, it's it's been a pleasure actually to go back and revisit his films. Um, obviously, I still have a few to go yet. Um, and thanks to this podcast for actually making me go back and revisit his films. Um, um, and, Thank you for you know, that. Yeah, no, it's been Thank an absolute pleasure. Yeah. And I think, um, like, as as a lot of the guests have said, as as Lucas said, as as Jason has said, that um, you know, sometimes it takes three or four watches to appreciate just how great some of his films are. You know, it's not, you know, watching watching one of his watching his films just once isn't enough. You know, you need to watch watch them several times, and each time I watch them, I, I get more out of them. And I think that's sort of, that's that's a sign of a remarkable filmmaker. I don't think we'll see his like again, to be honest. You know, I don't, I don't see anybody, you know, filling his shoes at the moment. But who knows? Let, let's hope maybe. In- and yet we have Adam McCoy out there. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, you, maybe you could just dismiss him out of hand. Like, just maybe, maybe in 20 years' time. <laughs> we'll all be sitting here having an Adam McCoy <laughs> exactly. season. You know, there's, there's someone. No, we fucking won't. <laughs> Eight solid Maybe weeks of Adam McKay's classic. Do not call me for that, Darren. Maybe I do not want to be called for that. Uh, and we'll be discussing such classics as Vice, The Big Short, Anchorman Vice 2. 2. Vice 2. Yeah. Vice 2, the Trump years. Vice Harder. Because so, yeah. oh you know he's pitching that, right? You know he's pitching that. Of course that, right? he is. Metallica Nights is pretty good. And Jay, as our co-host, our co-pilot for these 12 spectacular episodes, good Lord. thank you so much for your patience, but... Any takeaways here? Anything? Any closing thoughts on watching these Scorsese movies again? Or well, I'll, I'll echo Eva and uh, saying that it is a pleasure to revisit. I think what was really interesting, actually, other than the great guests and whatever that we had good chats about, is particularly Andrew's kind of somewhat kind of I like him, I don't like him, push pull kind of Scorsese. He's sort of a Scorsese agnostic to some degree. Witness for the prosecution, like, sort of thing, sometimes. But I like that though because. Anybody like I'm saying similarly to some of the guests as well. I think you need somebody to kind of make you think about the films because they're not. Because I would have had like kind of I love this film without particularly examining it as maybe as perhaps critically as I should. And it I think it's revealing when people see them from different different perspectives to make you look anew at what you've watched and what you've seen and whether you still agree with yourself or you or has changed and your relationship has changed with the films. And so uh, that was great. Uh, so thanks for that, both of you. And yeah, our, our pleasure. I, I suppose as well, like that, that it's very kind of subjective. That this yes. goes that can turn some people off 
Scorsese's kind of filmography will be the thing that will draw somebody else yes. to it. Like the, sure. the, the uh, kind of appreciating the the grittiness of it. Yeah, absolutely. Where somebody else can kind of look at it and say, I don't like these. They're all so gross. And you sticky know? and unpleasant and, and smelly. And, yeah, exactly. I think at one point you said like you felt like you might get cholera from watching the gangs of New York. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> but I can understand the thinking though. Even if I disagree with it, I can absolutely understand yeah. the thinking. You know? No, no. I, like I, I, as, as the person who suggested this summer of Scorsese, which did not work out as I had planned uh, in any way, shape or form, and I think was perhaps the better for that. Uh, but no, thank you. Anna. You hadn't planned a pandemic. I hadn't I mean, planned the pandemic. <laughs> I hadn't planned for it to close in December, by the way. So our Christmas season now includes Hugo, <laughs> The Wolf of Wall Street, The Return of the Jedi. If I can convince Andrew to do it, Dune and Mank. This is our oh, Christmas lineup, it seems, this year. Uh, but I no, definitely do Dune. We're, okay, we're doing... That's um, it. We've agreed on the air. It's, a, a it's canon now. For, for, but quite frankly, now, I'll be just sitting at my table recording I... Dead Silence every Tuesday night <laughs> for the next few weeks. <laughs> just out of habit. Was that a Dune pun, Jay? No, it was not, because I would not be here for <laughs> oh. Dune. Uh, okay. I, I want no you're... part of it. You're 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 doomed now, are you? You're doomed I'm doomed now. to failure. <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, but no, I want I want to say thank you very much to Andrew for doing this as well. Actually, um, oh, I, thank I, you. I, work I, I, I know I, I could just, have... it's, We've covered movies that are on the list. We've and are hundred percenters that are one hundred percent not on the list, and have never, <laughs> never, never been on the list. That was your idea, <laughs> yeah. to be clear. Like it, it, was, was, it, was, it was, it was. You're the one who was yeah. like, "I want to do Cundin," and then just open the door, and it's like, "Okay, fine, we're doing Cundin, but we're also doing Gangs of New York, we're doing The Aviator, and sure, let's throw in Hugo as well." Um, but <laughs> but no, no. Um, thank you very much. And wouldn't boring Catholic. <laughs> and would would the closing closing argument for the witness of the prosecution, Andrew? So how has Scorsese season been for you? Um, uh, I have enjoyed, um, kind of, I enjoy getting to see Kundun. It's something that I kind of look, look forward to for, for, um, for a while because I, I kind of, um, discovered this, uh, musically, um, and appreciating, I guess, what Scorsese can do as a filmmaker. Um, I, f- I feel like kind of aesthetically, he kind of wants to do things that, I, that, that, that don't draw me in, I think as well, in terms of like thematics, he's less interested in sometimes ex- ex- exploring things in a way, maybe in, in, in a kind of a obvious or didactic way that I, like, I, I, I actually don't mind that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you wait until the last week to get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I love that Andrew's maybe, big takeaway from like the summer of Scorsese is maybe McKay's that McKay. Right, <laughs> yeah, that McKay guy's on the McKay sure can direct. Yeah. <laughs> you son yeah. of a bitch, Andrew. Wait until the last week to do that. I, I think it's, um, no, I think, but, I think um, it's, it's hard to, f- it's easy to forget just what a broad range of films Scorsese has made in so many different genres yeah, like he's made absolutely. kids films he's made costume dramas he's made musicals he's made melodramas gangster movies. yeah yeah he's made music videos so yeah. he's a remarkable yes. talent and we should cherish him while we, while we still have him yes god bless him <laughs> Eva's, Eva's kind of like that's right like i've noticed the grim subtext we will never see his like again 
Ethan, don't, do not kill Marty. Yeah, it, uh... it really seems like you know something we don't. It's like it's, it's 2020. <laughs> it's you know, it's a disaster. <laughs> yeah, it's fair. It's a fair point. Very fair point. Not, not only does he make a lot of movies, but he makes them long as well. He does. <laughs> like. If he made a lot of short movies, that would be one thing. He makes lots and lots of very different, but all really long. <laughs> yeah. Um, so fair play to him. May he keep on living. Indeed. <laughs> I, I'm not sure whether I, I kind of like Aoife's like pessimism beforehand or Andrew's like sarcastic like joy. Long may he continue living so that I have to keep talking about these long ass movies. <laughs> Well, look, Andrew, the good news is that we probably won't have to talk about another Scorsese film until The Killers of the Flower Moon next year. So we're well clear, which is good. Um, All right, then. So before we wrap up, what we normally do is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners, something they're enjoying at the moment they think listeners might enjoy. It can be related to this movie. It can be unrelated to the movie. It can be something festive because Christmas is coming up. And to give Aoife, Luke, and Jason a a moment to think about this, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. What would you recommend for listeners? Um, I recommend two things related to this movie. Um, I think I, I, I um, it's, it's. Are they hookers uh, and cocaine? <laughs> no, uh, masturbating, um, like at least twice a day. Always a week. Uh, Welcome to lockdown. Did anybody see yeah. that in the movie and think twice a day is not that much? No, it was the eighties, Andrew. They're very different times. Yeah, it was the great masturbation shortage. That's what led to Black Friday. Um, But anyway, sorry. No, I I was going to actually write the movie starts in 1987. I quite enjoyed uh, Black Monday, um, which I think people can see on like Now TV or on Sky if they have. Oh, this one with Don Cheadle, Um, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, with Don Cheadle. I enjoyed it. It was quite funny, and it it it, is kind of um, covers. similar kind of um, ground with kind of disgusting people. You have, uh, Jordan Belfort has a Lamborghini. The main character in um, in Black Monday has a limbo, which is a mix between a limo and a Lamborghini. You make it sound like it's like so, bread. You make it sound like it's some sort of like mongrel thing where they locked a Lamborghini and a limousine in a room together. And it was like it's, nine months later, we had a Lamborghini. It's hilarious though, because one of the characters points out is like, um, but it has none of the performance of a Lamborghini <laughs> and none of the luxury of a limo. Don't you know anything about cars? Yeah. Um, so I, I enjoyed that for kind of like a, a kind of a comedic look at the excess um, of Wall Street. And um, I guess a more sober kind of look. Um, Dirty Money has an episode um, I think the second season has just come out and there is uh, there's an episode on 1MDB. It's not an awful lot of fun, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a decent kind of a documentary to cover briefly um, um, that scandal, which I, 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 I think kind of um, was revealed last year. Um, and, and it's the kind of thing where you might watch it, discover a little bit about it, and maybe... Um, go looking kind of doing some reading um after it so yeah check um check that out there's also stuff about like jared kushner and of course um there's stuff about wells fargo um 
yeah, all, 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 all of these kind of cases of um, kind of fraud and white collar crime and yeah, the world we live in. On that cheerful note, Jay, what would you recommend? Uh, I've got a couple of things. One, I would I would absolutely recommend getting drunk one night and watching The Trial of Chicago 7. Oh, that's the Aaron Sorkin film. It's the most sorkin Sorkin films you'll see. Uh, it's not particularly good. It's not particularly bad or fun initially. And you think you're getting a kind of relatively sober and solid film for the most part. And then we get to certain points, particularly the end, that uh, I almost broke in half cringing um, at... It's, is this when A.B. Hoffman talks about the beauty of the system as it exists? That sort well, of Well, there's moment. that. That's when it this when when it really kicks into high gear. And then we get the red the red main scene at the end. Uh, but I say it's it's a lot. I mean, if you like Sorkin, close your ears. But Jesus, wet. He's become a parody, or maybe he's always a parody. I have no idea. But anyway, it's fun in a kind of good lord. It's all no newsroom. They're all going to get Oscar nominations for actors, and they're all terrible. <laughs> But anyway, that's a, a different issue. The cat's accents are everywhere. The nobody looks comfortable. It's awful. It's a, but it's fun. Donald Clark says, "What seven nominations, no wins, written all over." It. Oh, it does. It has that kind of color purple. Yeah. There's nothing else this year. Let's throw in a few nominations at it. Look, yeah. it's dreadful. But it is kind of fun in its dreadfulness. Uh, yeah, I'd watch that. Kind of. And the other thing is a book actually, which I'm reading at the moment and I recommend, which is called and it it might might work for people in the context of 2020. It's called Skyfaring: A Journey with a Pilot, written by Mark Van Hacker and Hacknacker. I got, I don't know. It sounds like Doctor Hofer, but it's V A N H O E N A C K E R. It's it's a pilot who basically writing about flying, and. It sounds like it could be really dry, and I was recommended it by somebody, but it's not at all. It's got some absolutely beautiful turns of phrase and kind of descriptions of what, how we fly, why we fly, the psychology of being in one place in the morning and being somewhere totally alien nine hours later, and the kind of weirdness of it, and the fact that we're the, like you know last hundred years is the first time anybody's seen the world from a particular sense and angle. It's really thoughtful, kind of quite funny, really lovely, uh, and. Because we can't travel anywhere, I think it kind of, it kind of fits. It's kind of nice and lovely, and not without a kind of bittersweet kind of feel to it. Because we can't really do all of this, but I'd, I'd recommend it. I really, really join it. Uh, so yeah, get on that. And what would so you say it really elevates the form? Yeah, I would say that. Darren. And the name once again? It's called Skyfaring: A Journey with a Pilot. And I'm not attempting the the, the writer's name <laughs> again, but it's very good. Perfect. Um, and Luke, what would you recommend for listeners? Um, well, if you need to, I suppose, recover from the Wolf of Wall Street's uh, repugnance and refusal to engage with any kind of consequences, and also its uh, running time, uh, even though it's a great movie, I would recommend that you watch Dick Johnson is Dead on Netflix. Yes. Uh, Kirsten Johnson's documentary um, about her uh her father, her father, uh, as he's beginning to kind of move into the last stages of his life, um, a really moving and, and kind of very emotionally involved uh, depiction of you know the ultimate the consequence the 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 thing that we all go through. Um, but it's it's really handled um, with so much openness and honesty and kind of humor, but also acknowledgement of what that humor is kind of masking. Um, 
it even you know it it, it kind of is working through uh, the inevitability of of uh, Johnson's father's death by kind of <laughs> depicting it over and over again in these comedic scenes, but uh, again in kind of contrast to the morality of the making of this film like Johnson does reckon with the morality of what she's doing uh, which is another interesting kind of aspect of it it's also 89 minutes long <laughs> uh, it's available on Netflix it's it's one of the best films I've seen this year so it won't be current by the time you listen to it this year though, yeah. kind of on the year endless <laughs> certainly it'll be on mine it's I echo that so I'd say I think that was one of your recommendations a couple as of weeks well. ago. Yeah. I might have might have mentioned it a few weeks ago. I think yeah, it's very yeah. very good. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be my film. Now you have to. Now you have oh, to. I have to watch it. Yeah, this is going to be like like um, like uncut gems when everybody was eventually tell me tell me to watch it. Eventually, it became one of my own recommendations. <laughs> so. <laughs> Stockholm syndrome. In Watch out on our Christmas special. Andrew will have a very special recommendation for everybody. Uh, and then Aoife, what would you recommend for listeners? Um, I'm going to recommend a book. Um, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for books about about films, but the making of particular films. Um, like Julie Solomon's The Devil's Candy is one of my favourites, but making of The Bonfire of the Vanities and everything that went horribly wrong with that. <laughs> but my current read is this final cut, um, Dreams and Disaster in the Making of Heaven's Gate by Stephen Bach. It's currently out of print, but you can you can pick it up secondhand, very secondhand dealers on the internet. And it's a fascinating account of of um, the the death of a studio, I suppose, the film that sort of destroyed United Artists. And like we were talking about studios earlier on, and then how things have changed. But this was this was before all that, um, and it's about you know I I find Heaven's Gate a very fascinating film. Um, and really interesting from, but the history behind it is even more fascinating. So if you can get your hands on a copy of the book, I would highly recommend it. I'm still reading it, so I can't, I don't have a lot of details about what's happening at the moment, but it is currently, it's very, very fascinating. And it's a really, really- I think I actually have that edition, Aoife, on my bookshelf at home. I bought it years and years ago on second hand show. Have you read it? I have, yeah, it's great. Really, really good. It's heaven's grace. Thank yes. you. <laughs> Thanks, Darren. Sell me this book. <laughs> it's a lot harder over Zoom, Aoife. Um, the, 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 um, maybe, maybe, maybe both your editions will be on the second-hand markers. What of our listeners can pick them up? <laughs> push those prices up. Those are lucky numbers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for my own recommendations, a very, very couple of quick ones, uh, just to be absolutely clear here. Because we've been doing a Scorsese season, uh, a couple of my primary sources I've been using are Scorsese on Scorsese by David Thompson and Conversations with Scorsese by Richard Schickel, uh, both of which were invaluable in terms of research, in terms of putting material together for this season. Now, they both ended earlier in the season. I think I pointed out when they did Shutter Island, I think was the last one covered in Conversations with Scorsese. But if you do want kind of a Scorsese fix, if you want a companion that's more than just this set of podcasts uh, while you're going through his filmography, I would wholeheartedly recommend those. Uh, the second thing I'll recommend is a very quick one and it's purely based on the fact that the title also includes Wolf uh, it was Halloween a couple of weeks ago so we're well past Halloween at this point coming up to Christmas but I really enjoyed The Wolf of Snow Hollow uh, which is the new movie from Jim Cumming um, who directed um, Thunder Road from a, a couple of years ago which was an interesting film I thought it showed a lot of promise I didn't love it as much as most people did I found it suffered a bit too much from the Sundance indie 
uh, kind of thing. In that there's a sequence in it where a character dances to Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. Oh, no. yeah, yeah. But other than that, it's really good. So it kind of okay. balances itself out. But basically, The Wolf of Snow Hollow takes that kind of indie Sundance sensibility and then sets it in a werewolf movie that is also very, very, very heavily indebted to the Signs of the Lambs. Um, and I really love this. This is one of my favorite movies of the year so far. So it's well worth seeking out if you get a chance to. Were, were, were you liking the tropes? Oh, <laughs> very good. <laughs> um, All right. Oh. Better see you even shot, Darren. <laughs> well done, Andrew. Well, well done, Andrew. Um, all right, then. And then final recommendation, actually, because we're coming to the end of Scorsese season and we want to go a full loop. Listeners, if you want to continue Scorsese season on your own terms, last Christmas, myself and Andrew and Jay and our good friend Phil Bagnall, while we were still allowed to meet in person, met together around Christmas time, sat down with a bottle of Jameson and recorded a three and a half hour podcast on The Irishman. Which yes, was, we did. Um, so that is actually in our feed. And I would recommend if you are listening along with us as you're watching Scorsese, if you've been doing it chronologically, Maybe you can take a leap and that might be worth a listen if you want to jump along with that. Um, with yeah, that in mind... We've, we've removed it from the paywall. We've, yeah, <laughs> if you can find the paywall. Uh, we, we, need to, yeah, we also need to have a conversation about the paywall, but we'll do that next week. When we're going to be talking about Return of the Jedi, yes, because it's almost Christmas, it's time for our annual Star Wars episode. The Jay, best Star Wars film. Yes, Jay, I'm almost tempted to ask you to come back and join us for that discussion, um, but I feel like you've done the state some service. So you have an I, open I, invitation. If you feel the urge you. to, you can pop by. I go, I'm going into spectacular semi-retirement now. <laughs> <laughs> it's grand. We'll, we'll drag you back out of retirement for next year's, like, uh, what yes. we call it, it'll be Knights of Nolan or something like that when we go through He's, Nolan. I can't wait. Jay, Jay has done enough, and he's 71 years of age. <laughs> <laughs> it's been 84 years. <laughs> yeah. uh, we were so happy to have him on talking about the experience of watching Who's That Knocking at My Door for the first time in a cinema on opening night. Thank you so much for bringing that experience. You're welcome. Podcast, Jay. Um, but no, thank you so much to Aoife, uh, who's joined us for a couple of times. Thank you so much, uh, Luke, who joined us for this discussion. Jay, for doing 12 weeks. Next week, we'll be back. We'll be launching during our kind of annual Star Wars episode. Luke will be joining us again with a bit of luck for that. Um, also, the wonderful Grace Duffy and the fantastic Andy Mellowish to discuss the final Star Wars movie on the list. That is the 1983 Return of the Jedi. Until then... Take care, guys. Thank you so much. And I'm sorry right. that this was so long. Cheers. Bye. Thank you so much. No, it was Bye. just like a Scorsese movie. It felt Thank like an appropriate you. way to sign off.